What's up, man? Call him, man. Chillin', chillin'. Yo, you know I had to call. You know why, right? Why? Because, yo, I never ever call and ask you to play something, right? Yeah. You know what I want to hear, right? What do you want to hear? I want to hear that Scary Stuff Pod. Scary Stuff Podcast again? Oh, yeah, get it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, listener. Listener, come on. Once upon a time, we could control ourselves while we sat alone in a boggy marsh. But then we realized it was time for just another bomb pod. We needed a hot topic, so we put on our black coats, white shoes, and black hats and went rising to the street. There was a place. The name of the place escapes me. At least it was a clear black night and a clear white moonlight that spilled on comic books. And we thought the world is a vampire, so we couldn't do that. That thought crawled beneath our veins and we wondered, what do we have to do to make you happy? We want to blow you away. So we needed another great episode. We can't just say, listen to Iron Maiden, baby, with me because of copyright issues. We thought about asking Little Miss Campy wrong, but that just sends us down, down. So we continued driving and striving and thinking of some topic for which we still burned. Then, insane and rising in our own weird way, it hit us like the latest fashion, like a spreading disease. Despite sharing Sharon's outlook on the topic of movies, we decided to do an all-90s episode. So when we come around, we want you to notice our disturbing behavior. But, but, but wait, it gets worse. We're not watered down, so we're dying to know what you did last summer. It's not an urban legend or paranoia paranoia to say that we want you should take your hat off while talking to us about the faculty, who happen to smell like sex and candy. Hopefully, we won't nearly lose you while this runaway train heads into the great wide open. This is S-C-A-R-Y-S-T-U-F-F, you see. And we never try anything, we just do it. Anyway, here's Wonderwall. Hello, and welcome back to the Scary Stuff Podcast. This week, we're month, whatever, I don't know how often we put these out, every two weeks? How often do you listen to them? Well, doesn't matter. Hopefully a lot. Anyway, welcome <laughs> to another episode. I'm here with our usuals in Nick. How's everybody doing tonight? And Eric. What are you shitbirds doing down here? <laughs> 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 well, as you can tell from the intro... It's an all 90s episode here at Scary Stuff Podcast. We uh, are going to look at two, well, two of my favorite and two other movies <laughs> that you've probably heard of. Like I said in the intro, we're going to be talking about I Know What You Did Last Summer, Urban Legend, Disturbing Behavior, and The Faculty. Now, hopefully you've seen all of these movies because they came out like 25 years ago. And uh, <laughs> if you haven't seen them, I hope you've seen Scream, which is probably as good as seeing all four of these movies. But you get the idea. Yeah, this is the In the Shadow of Scream episode, essentially. Yep. It's also in my notes as the Jacob Enjoys His Time in the Sun episode. <laughs> because Jacob knows what Nick picked for episode 10. And then come episode 13, you're mine. <laughs> yeah, so I, I tried to get it all out of my system this episode. Hence the <laughs> intro. That I had fun with. It was fun. And this was a fun one to prep for. It's interesting. These are movies that it's a period I have a lot of nostalgia for, but not movies I have a lot of nostalgia for. Yes. So I had seen three of these movies once, and one of these I hadn't seen at all. Same. And so it was fun, you know, just kind of seeing the time period again. I'm prepping as best I can. I got um, 
That's the sound of my Mountain Dew bottle opening. And I've got a bag of Doritos because this was pretty much my diet when this came out. The only way that could be better is if it was a bottle of Surge. <laughs> I thought about that. Didn't they ban that in 50 states? Yeah, Surge was like the taboo drink at my high school. It was like, oh, you got Surge? I never had it. I remember actually driving down past the canal to like get to the only Wawa that had the first test batch that came out. Got like three two liters and they were yummy. Uh, but the, the, obviously the initial batch had, uh, how do I put this? Too much dye in it. It was just too much green number whatever dye in it. And it had interesting effects. And it carried through, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, it did. It's funny. Surge was never on my radar because I'm a little bit older than you guys. The big caffeine poison drink was Jolt mm. when I was a kid. That was oh, the one that oh, our yeah. parents warned us against. By 98, I was in college and it was just like, this has caffeine in it? Sure. Can you inject it directly into my eyeball? <laughs> Surge was high school. College was Jolt. I used to buy Jolt by the uh, case back in college. I get like 120 cans at a time. <laughs> yeah, I tried the caffeine sodas when I was younger and when I you know, desperately needed caffeine to exist. And I just made the switch to coffee pretty young and just rolled with it. You know, I should point out, we've mentioned Scream like three times already. The reason we're not doing Scream is we wanted to save it for a later episode. We'll do the whole franchise. Yeah. Because if I was the listener, my first thought is, yeah, huh, faculty, disturbing, I know you. Why aren't you doing Scream? That's why. <laughs> Although I did watch Scream in prep. That's half of what I expected your intro to be with this episode is, we're doing all the horror movies from the 90s you love. Except that one. You know, the first one you thought of. <laughs> and also, not the second one you thought of, but we're doing that one as a bonus episode. <laughs> so, yeah, for folks who are wondering, we normally announce bonus episodes later, but if you're wondering where the craft is on this list, we're going to be doing that one as a bonus episode. For this one, we're sticking with the pair of slashers and the pair of body snatcher-esque ones. But the craft actually predated Scream, which I didn't remember. Craft is from May 96. Scream is from December 96. Yep. Well, and I know what you did last summer was written before either of them then, probably. Yes. Well, the novel by a lot. Yes. Yeah, the novel by a lot. The novel predates me, and I'm old. The novel is by uh, Lois Duncan, who I think also did Hotel for Dogs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Hot what the fuck is Hotel for Dogs? <laughs> <laughs> it's something not in our wheelhouse, but I do recognize the posters. <laughs> It's, it's, you know, CGI, dogs running a hotel. You don't, don't worry about it. It doesn't belong in this podcast. <laughs> well, we talked about racing stripes last month, so I feel like maybe we should have covered this this month. Upcoming bonus episode, the Racing Stripes Hotel for Dogs double feature. <laughs> but, you know, speaking of, that's just who wrote the novel. The screenplay was by Kevin Williamson. Yes. Who, funny enough, is the same person who wrote the Scream franchise and the faculty. <laughs> nope. So it's he comes up a lot. He essentially is 90s horror. He was unable to sell this script for the longest time until Scream took off. And when Scream took off, they wanted all his stuff. Oh. He had a job after Scream with I Know What You Did Last Summer and The Faculty because Scream did so well. It's interesting. It A, I can't really understate what a big deal Scream was being in high school when it came out. Like it really was everywhere scream was it was huge no matter what class you were in somebody had a vhs tape of scream in their bag so if you had a substitute teacher and they were like i don't feel like doing shit what do you kids want to watch so they crammed scream <laughs> in the vhs player that's awesome wait you watched scream in school multiple times that makes me so happy to hear <laughs> multiple times like, isn't this rated r it was like we've all seen it already screw it no joke we probably watched scream like double digits and scream was i'm not saying everyone in high school liked scream but everybody in high school saw it at one point or another. It was just everywhere. 
And Kevin Williamson was one of the first cases of that I can remember of folks following a screenwriter was like, oh, shit, this dude wrote Scream. Oh, shit. Let's check out. I know what you did last summer to the point that one of the trailers for the faculty actually specifically mentions from the writer of Scream, Mm -hmm. which they got sued for. Did they? Maybe it was the posters. They got sued for putting, you know, I meant to go back and double check. But I think it was from the writer of Scream or from the makers of Scream on the I Know What You Did Last Summer posters. Uh, and they got sued for They couldn't for do it. that, right. Yeah, different studios. If, for me, Scream came out after I was in high school. Not It was, came out when I was in college. And I should probably save all my good stories for it for whatever episode we're doing. But I had only ever seen it once, which was once with my brother. And I, I liked it. It was at his house in rural Cape Cod at the time. And I was visiting and we were staying rather than in the house, we were staying in a popped up trailer out back in his yard. So we watched Scream. And this is back when I was a big wuss about well, horror movies. Back when? Oh, okay. okay. Shut up. <laughs> and I had to go sleep in this trailer alone. And, you know, Scream itself is more of a horror comedy, but that opening sequence is decidedly scary. Yeah. That reminds me of my response to The Ring. <laughs> I, I would say that it's scarier than anything in the four movies we actually did do for this episode. That might be fair. Yeah, I would agree with that. So, I mean, we're, we're right there. We might as well start to get into I Know What You Did Last Summer, which is a more traditional slat. It gets compared to Scream, obviously, because it came out after and he only sold it because Scream did a bazillion dollars. And it did very well. But it is definitively a more typical standard slasher film than Scream is. It is not as tongue-in-cheek you wouldn't label it a horror comedy in any fashion no i think the only really funny part is freddie prince jr acting in it (laughs) yeah we'll get into his acting so to give this some chronological context a scream came out december of 96 i know you did last summer came out in october of 97 and so to give you an idea of how hot these teen horror movies were so scream was apparently made on a 14 million dollar budget it brought in 173 million and 103 of that was domestic. And then I know what you did last summer had a roughly the same budget, 15.8. And this is a year later, and it brings in 125 million, 72 million of that being domestic. So the return on investment for these movies was significant. So I have to say that I, I would assume the return for I know what you did last summer was probably almost entirely due to opening weekend type numbers because of the popularity of Scream. I think if Scream had not come out the year prior, it would not have held its own to the same level. Yeah, no. And I'll be curious to look at like what the box office numbers were for the craft when we get to it. But yeah, for the most part of the four movies we're doing tonight, three of them did quite well. One of them, not so much. Well, even Scream wasn't an immediate hit. It took a few weeks before it started rolling. I would not be surprised if Scream took a while to like heat up. But I think this just survived all the fire of that. And I will say, it seems like the only person who was taking notes was Jason Blumhouse. Jason Bloom. Jason Blumhouse. <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes forget that that's not his last name. Nope. I just want to call him Blumhouse. B-L-U-M-H-A-U-S. Blumhouse. Blumhouse. Well, it was from Blumhausen, but when they came to the country, they had to drop that because it sounded a little too, you know, shady. Anglinize it. Although, speaking of Jason Bloom, who's come up in previous episodes, one fun thing I saw reading up on I Know What You Did Last Summer was back in 2014, Mike Flanagan and his screenwriting partner, Jeff Howard, were attached to write a reboot of this. Really? Yeah. Because there's one in the works now. It sounds like it's a TV series. I haven't seen any of the sequels, but it doesn't seem like a concept that really bears a lot of repeating. There is a movie that we're doing tonight, which I actually think is remake worthy, but it's not this one. And, you know, to a degree, the remake of this was Urban Legend. 
So, uh, yeah, well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> there are some similarities. There's some similarities. I, I think this is the weaker film, while Urban Legend has a significantly larger number of logic holes in it, which drive me insane. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm I'm flipped on that. I have watched both of them a couple of times now, and at least on the second view, and I enjoyed. I know what you did last summer more than urban legend but we'll we'll kind of get into why with urban legend but i do think i know what you did last summer is a fairly strong if relatively typical slasher movie that's fair and it's got one particular scene that for a slasher movie i thought was amongst the best i have ever seen for that genre now i say that with what both of you know is that slasher genre is not my wheelhouse oh no when i say it's one of the best kind of scenes in these movies i've seen You've not seen many. Take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> it only made me mildly ill instead of projectile vomiting. <laughs> well, no, I, it, no, I actually like, and it, and it's the scene where Sarah Michelle Geller gets chased. Like that's a dynamite scene. I thought it's incredibly well done for what it is. It's got some serious holes in it, but we'll get to that. Yeah, the whole movie does. <laughs> not to the point of urban legend, which if you have to describe the closing oh scene, oh my god, goddamn Swiss cheese. <laughs> when we get to it, I sat down and I wrote down what happens in the last scene. And when you write it down, I'm like, somebody wrote this down before and didn't think this through. Or they just did it on the fly. But, you know, I liked I Know What You Did Last Summer. And I, I remember when I first saw it years back, I think I had seen, I had definitely seen The Faculty and Disturbing Behavior before. I know I had seen I Know What You Did Last Summer. When I f- watched Urban Legend for this, I honestly couldn't tell you if I'd seen it before. And if you ask me in two years, Urban Legend, I probably won't be able to describe the movie either. (laughs) Oh, I will, but we'll get to that. Oh, yeah. But this is the one I saw closest to its release date. Mm. So I didn't see this in theaters, but I did see this with friends pretty much the instant it hit VHS. Pretty sure I saw this in theaters. I didn't see any of these in theaters. It's possible I saw the faculty in theaters, and I'm just not remembering it because of reasons that I don't remember things from around that time period when I was a young man in college. (laughs) What do you mean, Jacob? <laughs> but I'm pretty sure I didn't see it in theaters. We're doing better on the feeling old stuff than I was expecting. I was really afraid we were going to kick off the pod. I remember I know what you did last summer like it was yesterday. I just turned 45. <laughs> <laughs> None of this stuff made me feel old. I spent most of my 20s were in the 90s, so I, I have nothing but fond and somewhat hazy memories of a lot of it, <laughs> particularly with these movies. And and also, as again, you might have heard from the introduction, I am a fan of music that came out in the 90s quite a bit. It didn't take me long to come up with all of that. I didn't even have to go online. I just went to my 90s mix on my iPod, which I still use. Fuck you. And, uh, I don't know who that was directed at. <laughs> they know. yeah that's the reason we have the artwork for this episode that we did when i was trying to think of i was like all right well what do i want to do for an image that kind of unifies everything because we're kind of doing two different genres and so what just says the broad 90s and then in the weeks leading up to this you know jake was like and it has this on the soundtrack and this on the soundtrack and this on the soundtrack i was like oh aha (laughs) well part of the impetus for doing this episode was i came across the fact that degeneration which is one of my favorite artists jesse mallon's old band had a song in the faculty and i was like well shit i'm gonna rewatch the faculty to see where that was well shit i have a horror movie podcast well shit we need a topic <laughs> and it kind of went from that 90s teenage horror it is <laughs> what i had since learned is there's connections to the well the boston's have a song in this movie 
And there's a connection to Joe Strummer in Disturbing Behavior, which made me very happy. So I'm going to nerd out about a lot of that stuff, particularly the boss tones in I Know What You Did Last Summer, because it plays in a fairly pivotal scene, which surprised me because I didn't realize they were on the soundtrack. And when I was watching it, it was like, wait, hold up, hold up, hold up. (laughs) (laughs) I know that song. Paused it, rewound it. And I'm like, how did I not know this? And I felt bad about myself for a little bit. Those are the dulcet tones of Dickie Barrett. Uh, Yeah, and it plays in a pivotal scene. It's the only time when they reference the fucking music that's playing in the entire film. Mm -hmm. So that was exciting for me because I'm a big old music nerd. And the 90s were really, in my opinion, the heyday for soundtracks. Like all of these movies except Urban Legend have good soundtracks. Plus there were other great things like Tank Girl and Batman Forever and... A lot of other good soundtracks from the 90s, singles. I say Mario is probably somewhere going, singles, singles, say singles, say singles, please, say singles. (laughs) Singles was probably the ultimate soundtrack at the time. That was the one that everybody had, that reality bites. My personal two favorites are the ones I mentioned before, which are Batman Forever and Tank Girl, but also Beautiful Girls is close to that. And that has a connection to these movies, which we'll get into a little bit later. One of my favorite uh, soundtracks has to be Demon Knight. Ooh, nice. Yeah, Demon Knight's got a great soundtrack. Judgment Night would be the other one that would be on my list, too, which is the soundtrack that invented new metal. So despite that, it's still an awesome soundtrack. <laughs> I just feel like we have to blame it for a lot of crimes that happened after that. I never owned very many soundtracks, but of the few I remember owning, it was Demon Knight, and the other one I had was Last Action Hero on a tape. Wow. <laughs> That's why it stood out. I still have it. This random tape. Arnold Schwarzenegger in the front, busting through. Wow, that's the nerdiest shit we're going to hear all night, and I've got some nerdy shit. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. I do have some studio stuff. This was uh, directed by Jill Gillespie, who did the 2005 movie Venom, not to be confused with the DC Venom movie. Columbia Pictures, which are responsible for Zombieland, 30 Days of Night, and The Grudge, which is fun because that has the Sarah Michelle Gellar connection there. Oh, yeah. And also by Mandalay Pictures, which did The Voices, Horns, and Wild Things. But one of the best things this movie, in my opinion, is is it starts off strong with typo negative blasting in the background. Like, yes! (laughs) (laughs) Song called Summer Breeze. So good. Oh, man. And it so announces that this is a 90s horror movie. Oh, yeah. Hands down. Here's a horror sounding song over a helicopter shot of the California coast, which we're going to pretend is North Carolina, even though the fucking sun (laughs) is setting. Yeah, I got to give it this opening shot is terrific. This helicopter shot over the surf tracking around as the song plays. The sun's in the perfect position. It's a gorgeous opening shot. It's funny, though, because it comes down over the coastline. You can almost feel the helicopter guy going, oh, shit, overshot. And he like circles back around, back to the shot he needs to do. <laughs> it's the same road that's in the birds. Oh, nice. And again, I think it's a great shot. I've got no problems with it, except that the sun is setting. And then they tell you you're in North Carolina. And if anybody you know thinks <laughs> the sun doesn't set over the ocean in North Carolina... <laughs> And I think it's got to be a record for like the earliest continuity error in any of these films, for sure. Second one. Blam. (laughs) The sun was rising and that dude was just out there for like a day and a half. All day. (laughs) Except no, because then the fireworks go off. (laughs) Yes. It's shot in reverse. This helicopter is flying backwards. But yeah, it starts with a guy drinking on the edge of a cliff, looking very melancholy while holding a pendant. When you flip it, it says, I love you. Wearing overalls. And we cut to the first of many parades. This town loves its parades. <laughs> this was another little thing that bugged me. 
continuity wise. There's like a half parade going on and there's fireworks going off. But then everybody in town is inside watching the pageant. <laughs> While the parade's still going. While the parade's still going. Why is all this happening outside if everybody's inside? Like, That's not even the beginning of my parade problems. <laughs> I just think whoever coordinated their summer festival should be fired for somebody a little bit more competent. Because at this point, your legit you know, decision is, do I watch fireworks or boobs? And just seems a little odd to me. Even for a small town in North Carolina or South Carolina. I think it was North Carolina, right? I don't always remember the difference between the two. I do know it was a Carolina. Yeah, the second parade we see, they explicitly show this marching band performing in the morning. And then we see that same band in the evening. Yep. It's like, man, that's a sentence in hell. They've been going for like at least 10 hours. (laughs) (laughs) That's not even, oh my God. Yeah, you don't see the second parade in, I believe, in the uh, first one. Or do you? In the beginning, do you see the second parade in the first one too? No, we just get the okay. parade. That's I think the, night the opening yeah. as it transitions into the Croker Queen competition. Yeah. That's right. It's the nighttime parade as they go to the beauty pageant where Helen, played by Sarah Michelle Geller, known from her Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, The Grudge, and Scream Two career, is up on stage, and her boyfriend Barry, played by Ryan Phillippe from Wish Upon, Cruel Intentions, and MacGruber, <laughs> also from Delaware, <laughs> and from Delaware, and from Delaware. And then you have Ray, played by Freddie Prince Jr. from She's All That, Scooby-Doo, and Star Wars Rebels. <laughs> so what I had in my notes was everything matched up until we got to Ray Bronson. Uh, the character Ray Bronson I had in my notes was performed by Ms. Gilfogel, who is an alien trying to figure out what it means to be human. Because, <laughs> because Freddie Prince Jr., he performed, and God bless him, you know, he's... But in this movie... Especially in the opening, the dude acts like Jeff Bridges at the opening of Starman. Where <laughs> everything is just uh, 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 green, go red, stop yellow, go very go fast. real fast. <laughs> and he he tried. They didn't want him at first. He pushed to get this role. Really? Like they wanted somebody who was a bit more buff than him, and he worked out for it, which I thought was interesting. I would also suggest that nobody won as hard as Freddie Prince Jr. did with this movie. <laughs> because he met Sarah Michelle, Michelle Geller Geller, there yeah. and they got married <laughs> there you go they're still together they're going strong yeah as far as I know and he has had a long career in voice acting which I think is great for him because this was not a good performance and he wrote for WWE for a while really yes he's a huge wrestling fan he was a writer for WWE and then random bit of trivia, Lexi Alexander, the director of Punisher Warzone, which had the character of Jigsaw played by Dominic West. Apparently, Freddie Prince Jr. auditioned for Jigsaw and killed it. What the hell? Seriously? Yeah. She said he came in and he was by far the best. He killed this audition as Jigsaw, but the studio would not let her hire him. Wow. So I really wow. wish we could have seen the Freddie Prince Jr. Jigsaw, but alas, no. That'd been amazing. I, I can't even... Picture it, but okay. <laughs> I can. I can. I can see that he's improved with age. I mean, to be fair, nobody in this movie was particularly, you know, outstanding in terms of their acting job for it. And I've seen she's all that. He was okay in that. Yeah. So I don't know what happened with this. For the cast in this, I think Jennifer Love Hewitt was pretty solid. She was pretty good. Yeah. I mean, everybody was fine. Just not. There were no performances in this that I thought jumped out as something to to hang a career on. Yep. So you know, they're hanging out in the balcony watching the beauty pageant. Helen's asked, how does she want to contribute to the world? And she says she's going to go to New York City. 
where she's going to basically be an actor and entertain the world and make the world a better place. Through art, I shall serve my country. And she wins. She gets to win the pageant. Yeah, except the previous year's person isn't on stage. Like, she has to be later in the movie. I know! Isn't that awful? I'm just like, there's so many... Oh, I was going to I mean, get to that There's a variety later, of but... reasons that could happen, but it's something I noticed on the second watching. I'm like, yeah. Hey, Absolutely. Easily explained away, but still there. But, you know, while she's up there winning, they're making casual misogynistic comments about her breasts up in the balcony. <laughs> yeah. They're like, what the hell is that? Ryan Philippe in this is stunningly unlikable. Oh, my God. Like, in a little bit, the killer goes after him and doesn't kill him, and all you can think at the time is, come on, man, what are you doing? Finish him. Do me a solid. It's like they said, your character's kind of a douchebag. He's like, I will embody all that is douchebaggery. 200% douchebag. <laughs> like, when we get the flash forward to him in a little bit, when the movie cuts forward a year, it's mystifying to me that he's not selling, like, shitty health supplements. So let me get real jack, bro. Because he's just roid rage personified. Yeah, his performance and his character in this makes his character in Cruel Intentions look logical and okay. <laughs> Sarah Michelle Gellar actually plays pretty well in this. She's she does okay, a good yeah. job, and she's yeah. given a fairly vapid role and does a pretty decent job of being a little bit less vapid than I think that role was asking her to be. She breathes some life into it. She makes it more dimensional than it would probably initially intended. She's a great actress. She knows what she's doing. So they give her a script that's eh. And she, like, puts what she can into it. Yeah. Unlike the other crash test dummy or whatever Freddie Prince is emulating <laughs> for this. Up, up. You know, and I, I feel bad. <laughs> I, <laughs> I feel bad nitpicking the movie because it's, you know, all these logical inconsistencies. It's the kind of stuff other than the sun going down in the wrong ocean that you don't necessarily pick up immediately or you really think about on your first watch. It's the kind of stuff that jumps out at you when you watch it a couple of times in a There's row. some really big ones, though. You got to lean back and not care to really enjoy this film. You need to be like, I'm just, I'm here for moment to moment. You know, I don't need to worry about consistency. If you can do that, you might enjoy this movie. Right. And there's a couple of big ones in this. But for the most part, I thought it did a fine job with that. It's not like, where if you spend any time at all thinking about things, it breaks everything down like in urban legend. Oh, Jesus. But anyway, they go from this scene of casual misogyny to the party. To a shockingly huge party for this small town. This town throws the biggest rager. It's ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> They've got Southern culture on the skids playing. That's the band. They go all in. Everyone has a great time. The place is packed from top to bottom, except when they need the town dead. When they need the town dead, everyone conveniently goes to their corners and waits until everything is handled. Then they come back and continue the rager. <laughs> <laughs> that gets to me in the Sarah Michelle Gellar yes, chase scene. Yes, dead town, everywhere. The killer in this movie is the equivalent of an evil gunslinger who when he comes into town, everyone just flees inside, boards up. <laughs> so Julie, real quick, calls them on their misogyny, the balcony. They go, oh, yeah, yeah. And they all meet up at the party where we also meet Helen's sister, who is... The most two-dimensional character I think I might have ever seen in a film. It's like, what, what, what's my motivation here? You're her sister, and you don't like her. Okay. Uh, is there any reason why? Well, you don't like anyone. Uh, oh, uh, okay. Is there any, any redeeming? No, you're awful. Just be awful and hate everyone. <laughs> why did I turn down Mortal Kombat 2 for this movie? <laughs> I forget if it was the original script or if it was in the book, but the sister hates her because she's the golden child in the family. That's never addressed in the film. Yeah, it's not addressed at all in the film, but I came across it and she's 
the sister has been given everything and expected to succeed and every advantage. And the older sister got nothing. Like she doesn't even get the chance to leave town. And that's why she hates her so much. Mm. And you don't get any of that in the film. None of it. She's literally like unreasonably mean to her sister and happens to be mean to everyone else as well. She's just a terrible person in the film. Now, if she had ended the film dating Ryan Philippe's character, I would have been all right with it because they felt like they belonged together. I could see that. But this is also this party is where we meet Max, who is played by Johnny Galecki from, of course, Roseanne or, you know, The Big Bang Theory. I am fascinated by his character because he is the, like the caricature of the uppity rich kid, but he's not. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he has this whole field of like, I am a higher class than you. I matter more. You're all, you know, should just acknowledge this and treat me accordingly. And he doesn't earn that on any level whatsoever. <laughs> It's very confusing. He works the docks like 95% of this town, apparently. <laughs> yeah, like he, a lot of the stuff he says when he gets mad at everybody is because they're either too snooty or they're somehow trying to be too snooty, like Freddie Prince, who, I don't know, he thinks is playing above his station or something. It's funny because my note on that is Johnny Galecki is the stereotype pretty girl nerd friend, except he comes off as just as big a creep as Ryan Philippe. <laughs> And he does. Like, there is no redeeming anything to Max. Nope. Like, in a normal movie like this, he should be, you know, the nice, shy friend who, you know, he's, what are the kids calling it now? A simp? Yep. He's simping? <laughs> yep. Except he doesn't do that at all here. You're right. No. He's just very much a, you should be with me, screw these people, don't you know I'm hot shit? He's very fronting all the way. He even lays a trip on her right away. It's like, how can you go away without hanging out with me? We've known each other for so long. I'm like, bitch. Because, <laughs> like, I forget who it is who hits. It's Ryan Philippe who hits him, right? Yeah, uh, Barry uh, shows up drinking. Takes There's a zero percent chance I'm going to remember anybody's character's name, so yeah. I apologize. <laughs> Barry shows up, takes one look at him, immediately sees what's going on. He's like, "Get the fuck out of here!" And they start fighting. Ray has to break it up. <laughs> Literally, the only five seconds in the movie where I root for him. But here's the funny part. After that. They all get in the car and they drive down to Dawson's Beach. Yes. Which is a hilarious joke because Kevin Williamson is the creator of Dawson's Creek, <laughs> which you're going to hear a lot tonight. <laughs> the best one is in Urban Legend. Yes. Yeah. Which I didn't get. That's how lame I was in high school. Was <laughs> that it went over my head? I had to listen to the commentary to get that joke. I had, I never watched Dawson's Creek. For me, Dawson's Creek was a central thread through all four of these movies. <laughs> it's like that and My So Called Life are kind of the big ones. Oh, My So Called Life is great. Yeah. Yeah, but that was earlier than Dawson's Creek. Which brings us back to Jared Leto, who is in Urban Legend. Yep. But <laughs> we'll get to him. We'll get but to speaking him. of Urban Legends, it's exactly what they're doing on the beach. Is sitting around a campfire sharing creepy stories about a hook-handed man. It's just incredibly convenient since they go through like four different variations of the story, but like none of them whatsoever actually explains anything that happens in this film or correlates to the real killer on any level. Yep. <laughs> it's just, we're just going to sit here and coincidentally obsess over the method of killing, which will come up a lot in this film. It's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> that make, why? I, it's just... Ugh, it's so cheap. Like, why'd you do that? I mean, I know why you did that, but... <laughs> she has the line about how it's... She doesn't say it's an urban legend. She says it's a cautionary tale to prevent young women from having sex. And then Ray's like, no, I swear it's true. <laughs> and then they go and immediately have sex, so yeah. it didn't work if that was what it was supposed to be. It didn't work on anything, because, you know, there's hooks later, too. Ray comes off, he's like, no, no, it's true, it's true. 
and like someone who says something like that typically in these movies in these moments has something to back it up like you know if only you knew or this one guy i know and trust you know, he just goes no no it's true and that's it it stops the stop conversation's <laughs> over <laughs> like so he's like don't doubt me <laughs> So I didn't have this on DVD or Blu-ray or anything, so I don't know if there were deleted scenes. I didn't find any on YouTube. But it does feel like there should be a lot. Because like what you're just talking about, where it feels like there should be more to what's happening than there is. Yep. Yeah, no, instead it just cuts to the two pairs having broken off. Sarah Michelle Gellar and Ryan Philippe have gone off to the side and they're making out as she just sort of espouses about her future plans of going to New York and has this multi-stage plan. And Ryan Philippe is going to be playing for a football team, which he then specifies the Cowboys. (laughs) And one thing I liked was that in this future, you know, hypothesis that Sarah Michelle Gellar is spelling out, she specifically includes him going to rehab. Like, well, she's realistic. Yes. (laughs) Like this woman knows what she's talking about. (laughs) So I thought that was funny. And one thing I like from a construction standpoint is the camera is tracking around them. It's a single take and the camera is tracking around them the whole time. And when the shot ends, it's gone around to the other side of the campfire, which is directly in front of them. And they ratchet up the sound of the campfire directly in front of him. It was like, just so you know, you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> and in tandem with this is Jennifer Love Hewitt and Freddie Prinze have their own sex scene. But before that, they have the best conversation ever. Because <laughs> she's going to be going off to college. He's staying at home. She's worried he's going to fall for someone else. And he says, no shit, the success rate of high school relationships is higher than any other type of relationship. <laughs> I I had to wipe my eyes. I was just like, are you kidding me? It's like the exact opposite. You're so fucked. <laughs> it's funny. I completely missed that because I was hung up on the next bit, which is where she indicates, you know, she's down for sex. And he says, are you sure? And they begin to have sex. And it's like, is I, I get that sex on the beach has you know romantic connotations, but is the olfactory association with sex with your true love is is the association you want that to be is the smell of a rotting horseshoe crab? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is the Carolinas. <laughs> also, you can't have sex on the beach without putting a towel down or a blanket or something, because it, I can get really uncomfortable really fast. <laughs> Just say it. Yeah, it's altogether an odd scene. But it, what, what it does is it serves to establish that there are all these young people who have a pretty distinct bond and they all have these hopes and dreams that are, are coming up. And it sets up the undercurrent for the movie, which is they all want to you know leave town. They want to got these great big dreams that this small town can't contain. And yeah, and then shit happens. Yeah, so freshly sexed and freshly intoxicated, they set off in a vehicle. Freddie Prince Jr.'s driving. Ryan Philippe is hanging out of the sunroof. And well, what comes on the radio? Well, what's playing in the car is Forgotten 2 by Ugly Betty. And that's the song that Ryan Philippe distinctly insults and then turns on and plays Wake Up Call by the Mighty Mighty Boston's. Ah, now, this was, yeah. of course, my favorite moment in the movie where Ryan Philippe <laughs> is like, you can't drive. He puts that on. He goes out in the sunroof and starts screaming and yelling. And I won't say I haven't been out of a sunroof listening to the Boston's before, but, you know, the equivalent thereof. I've definitely been outside a sunroof. (laughs) (laughs) I was just shocked when I heard that because I I had no idea that that song was in here. And it's not an album track. Like, it wasn't a single for the Boston's. It's a B-side 
from, I forget, it was either the Rascal King or the Impression That I Get CD singles. Now, I knew the song because I know all of their songs. I'm an obsessive fan, but it's such a weird one to pick and it's such a weird choice and it works great in the scene but it's just funny to have the pivotal scene in this famous movie set to the boston's and i had no idea i felt like i let somebody down i'm not sure who but somebody (laughs) well since you may or may not have had experience hanging outside of sunroofs if you hit an unknown object at high velocity and it rolled over you like some object does ryan philippe Would you survive with only minor scuffing to your face? I would survive, but I sure as fuck would be like paralyzed with the waist down. (laughs) This thing rolls over him and he's just got some scuffs on his forehead. It was like, ah, buddy. They're not real scuffs. It's the other person's blood all over him. He said, it's not my blood. I'm like, bitch, you're unconscious at best. You should be fucking dead. Yeah, Barry drops a bottle in the car, fishes it out, sits back up, sees something for a fraction of a second that then rolls over the front of the car. They pull the car to a screeching halt. They get out. Jennifer Love Hewitt's character picks up a single boot with blood running down it. So they fan out and look for the body. Which they find. They soon find the boot's occupant. And at which point, Jennifer Love Hewitt's character is dedicated to trying to do the right thing. At least everyone else is to varying degrees insisting how fucked they are. Including Ryan Philippe, who, as we see later in the film, is clearly rich enough to get off from whatever happens. Yeah. But he keeps insisting, I'm drunk as shit. And I was like, and you're rich as shit. Why do you give a fuck? <laughs> it, very clear. He's just like, I don't want to have to deal with this. Let's just clean it up now. <laughs> and Ray is on board for this because he is not rich as shit. Yes, he cannot he afford not. a lawyer. Like, while everyone else is taken off to their glamorous lives, he's going to be left behind to, have to deal with this. So he is on board with Barry's plan. Yeah, he immediately saw, oh, no shit. He looked around and he he said, you know, if you look around and your friends are all there and one of them isn't the scapegoat, it's you. And he realized that, yep, he was going to be on the hook. So he got on board despite being a, you know, noble prince. Oh. oh. I had to make it once. <laughs> do you feel proud of that one? No, I'm not proud of it. I just felt like I had to do it. <laughs> it's not in my notes. You always have a choice, Jake. You always have a choice. <laughs> Nick, you and I live in very different worlds. (laughs) So yeah, Barry's like, let's dump the body. He says, the currents are strong, the undertow, it could carry him out to sea, is the logic. Yeah, they finally convince uh, Julia to come along by saying it'll cost her her future. At which point they start to like throw the body over the side rails towards the cliff when Max shows up in his truck. Red herring delivery, yep. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Julie tries to play like Barry is sick while uh, Ray talks to Max who ramps up his juice bag levels. Like he's, he's, immediately, he's immediately addicted to him. <laughs> They're on the side of the road. You should, if nothing else, assume there's a problem. People don't just stop yes. <laughs> on the side of a hairpin turn for the hell of it. There's a problem. But immediately he's like, oh, what the fuck? <laughs> it's, it's just a douchebag. And then Freddie Prince walks up and acts like, you know, he's like, can we help you? And he's like, well, you can go fuck yourself, basically. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to impress your girl, buddy. He's just such an asshole. He's, he's just immediately awful to the point where it's, it, there's no reason for it. You cannot connect to this person on any level because they're not really a person. <laughs> yeah. Just a caricature. My other thought is, is Max was at the party. Yep. And he heard them say they were going to this beach. So he was coming for them. I think he was spying because he was just behind them. He, he was on top of one of them rocks watching things happen that he shouldn't have. Just maybe. Yeah. But yes, yeah, so eventually they talk Max away. And then, I, I don't understand this. Like, they were carrying the body over to the rail, like they were going to dump it over the cliff, 
But once they get rid of Max, they're like, fuck it, and bring him back to the car to dump him at the harbor instead. Well, they, they were hiding it because they saw Max coming. There's, okay, so they only moved him because of Max. All right, all right. But, you know, they're still really crappy, this cleanup job, because they get to the harbor and they don't even think for a second to weigh the body down. <laughs> Two things at this point. One is, to what you just said, is later on in the movie, they specifically say, we were so careful. <laughs> Bullshit! <laughs> yeah, they're, they're so careful, they probably tell the security guard, what you doing? Tossing a body in the river. Okay, carry on, you know, I mean. Well, yeah, we got to remember, half of them were drunk. You know, I have this, like, image in my head of those classic comedies where, like, oh, yeah, I came to the party and I was eloquent. And the flashback is like, ah, <laughs> Well, see, this is, this is one of those things that's interesting to horror movies, that when you, when you kind of sit down and think about it, like, we're criticizing these teenagers for being terrible at hiding a body. <laughs> which implies I'm just saying that at that age i knew how to wait a body okay i'm just I, not See, that I had that's, to. that's my point this implies <laughs> that we think we would be better at hiding a body and i would like to think i would be bad at hiding a body no matter what age i am oh no it's easy yeah no i know i realize i would be good at it but i want to think i'd be bad at it you find a quarry I really need to stop talking about this. Well, yeah, this is the kind of thing where, you know, you get in trouble with Google or whatever. They start picking up phrases. And the second thing from this scene was I was really amused by the fact that Sarah Michelle Gellar was wearing her crown for the whole thing. The whole thing. The whole time. And then right after thinking that, she no longer is because the body has the crown. Snatches it right off of her <laughs> as, as he goes sinking into the water. So Ryan Philippe then has to dive underwater no to fix the crown. No way. No yeah, way. This, this bothered me right away. And dives under, and the dude is just hanging out underwater, exactly like Jason at the end of Friday the 13th, Part 7, <laughs> The New Blood. <laughs> but on top of that, it's like pitch black down there at night. There's no way in hell they can see anything. It's, it's crystal like, clear down there. Based well, on how they yes, <laughs> because lucky for Ryan Philippe, he had the goddamn searchlight from the cameraman helping him find where he needed to go. <laughs> How else would he see the guy's eyes open and freak oh him out? Oh, my God. It's hard to see underwater during the day. And this is in a marina, so that water is oh going to be dusty God. and mud awful. Up. Yeah. And so he sees the eyes open up, gets the crown, comes back up. And I'm sorry. I don't know about you, but if this guy just opened his eyes, I would at least stick around five goddamn minutes or so to make sure he stays down there. I mean, but no, they just bolt or, right away. Or <laughs> fish him out because he's not dead. No, 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 no. This is when it becomes accidental hum to homicide. This is Barry. You know, I get it's Barry. I understand he's why he did He's not saving this dude did. under any circumstance. But he's got to at least stick to the goal, which is to make sure he stays down there, which he doesn't put any effort into whatsoever. He's just hoping, well, those overalls seem heavy. It's lazy. He deserves what he gets. <laughs> they also see the tattoo. Yes. Yes. They can't make out the face. The face is all fucked up, but they do discern that there is a tattoo. It's an anchor tattoo and it says Susie? Whatever the, the, the woman who died in. Yeah. And you know, and the face, it's, if you think about it, the main reason the face is fucked up is because he headbutted Barry at 60 miles an hour. <laughs> and Barry, who at this point, again, rather than finishing the job, is instead insisting, we make a pact right here and right now, we take this to our grave. And this is where he just goes 150% Roy. Oh, what are you saying? Let me hear you fucking say it. Ah! Yeah, he chokes her. He grabs Julie by the neck, throws her against the car, and is in her face going, you make, you promise this pact. All while her boyfriend and best friend just stand there like, doop-a-doop-a-doo. -doo. <laughs> <laughs> they don't step in at all. What the hell? <laughs> He's still trying to figure out how that hand snatched the crown if he was dead. Oh, Jesus. So she concedes. 
and they swear the pact and now we flash forward a year later to a swanky college and we see julie the jennifer love hewitt character who is clearly of a more morose disposition than we last saw her clearly carrying some trauma yep and very begrudgingly going home we meet her fun roommate who i really wish was in the movie a lot more because she seemed really fun she seemed cool who instructs Julie to get your white-as-death chalky corpse in the car now. I do believe she is the only woman of color in the entire film, I if believe I recall. So, yep. Yes. <laughs> That's a problem in all four films we watched tonight. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which, honestly, fitting the classic slasher formula, I think I just understand what happens. She brought Julie home, because he gives a ride home. Mm-hmm. She takes off, and off-screen, she's the first kill of the killer off-screen. <laughs> you know? so that would it fits the it. formula. <laughs> yeah, it fits the formula, and that's why we don't see her again. That's all. Because this movie is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. She's actually in the movie later in Shadow. At the end, that's who gives her the letter. That could be anyone. Yeah, but she says her name. Oh, okay. Okay. And it's her. I think they did that end in a reshoot, and that's why she's not actually in it. They didn't want to bring her back for reshoots. Makes sense. I don't know that for sure. That's a guess. But they say her name, and it's the same character. Well, Julie's home, and she is... Having trouble eating, she just doesn't have an appetite. Her hair is frazzled, and she just won't open up to her mom. Her mom even jokes, that, you know, are you on drugs? Trying to just shock her, get any sort of reaction out of her, because she's just clearly not there. Like, for the last year, just been suffering under this weight, and it shows. And her grades have been bad, even though she's supposedly the smart one. Well, she hasn't been studying. The trauma is getting her in a position where she's not doing the work. Yeah, so she her grades are suffering from it. No, I get it. I'm not blaming her for having, you know, <laughs> poor grades in her freshman year. I'm just saying it's a point that they make is yes. that she is the smart one, but her so grades are bad. Right. I'm not criticizing oh. her. My grades freshman year were pretty terrible, too. Oh, I, Not for yeah. reasons that I killed anybody. The manslaughter is not what she should be ashamed about. She should be ashamed of letting down her single mother who's paying for her to go to college <laughs> and giving her shitty grades in return. Speaking of her single mom, so she gets left alone for a moment. And they do this pan around the room so we can be sad about her dead dad who never comes up again in the film. Yes. Ever. Ever. Like, it's just like, you should just know she's been on her own. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like the cheapest way of trying to say she's got some grit because she's had to. We're not going to explain it on any level. But look, dead dad. You know, <laughs> it's, Pretty it's much. Awful. This is another one where I feel like there were cut scenes. I hope so. But I think it's just sloppy and cheap. A lot of this felt sloppy and cheap. Man, you were so mad about this movie. Wow. I am disappointed because I never I saw this I thought you film. liked this movie when we were coming into this. I had never seen it. and missed it in the 90s. So watching it this week for the pod was the first time I had a chance to experience it. And I was like, great. I get to see. I know what you did last summer. I've been meaning to see this for a long time. It's one of those classic slasher flicks, much like Scream. And everybody has seen it. And I was like, it's great. This should be good. And I watched it. I'm like, why was this ever big? You know, I don't, I was, my, my expectations were way too high. So when I saw it, it was just like a punch in the gut. I feel like there needs to be a pause and like a moment of silence for the fact that I had seen a slasher movie that Nick hadn't seen. Yeah. <laughs> because that's, that's messing with my head right now. That's weird. <laughs> Wild. <laughs> well, but this is when she gets the letter. Yep, her mom gives her the letter with no postage, nothing on it to say where it came from whatsoever. She opens it up and it says, I know what you did last summer. In remarkably nice handwriting. In very nice handwriting. Yes, very nice penmanship. I was impressed knowing who the killer is at the end. This guy has worked on his penmanship. Not after this movie, 
because <laughs> he could, depending on whether he's right or left-handed. If he's left-handed, he, he, he could, could. He, he could hook with his right and right with his left. Yeah. But then I love this. She opens it up. She's visibly shocked, which is fair. It's a fair reaction. She knows immediately what she's referencing me to. She's like, oh, crap. So she goes to her mom and immediately asks for details in the letter, which there's no way she can have. And then also expects her mom to not give a shit about it after asking. But going on, it's like, <laughs> no, just walk away. <laughs> just stuff it in your pocket and then disappear. That's how you handle shit like that. But no, she's like, mom, what is this? He's like. I don't know. Is it a problem? No. Boom. And bolts. You know? <laughs> Not a suspicious spy. What's it about? Uh, drugs. Let's go. So she comes back frazzled, clearly upset, won't talk to her mom, gets this weird letter, and then we never see the mom again. At all. <laughs> At all. It's just like, no, 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 no. <laughs> There's no way in hell the mom is not freaking out and up in her shit constantly every day after this. Well, to be fair, this being a teen slasher movie and a teen horror movie, yes. they, they have to make a conscious decision about whether to include the parents a lot or not. Like in uh, uh, what's the friend Nightmare on Elm Street? Apparently, you never see the parents in the first one at all. Well, you see her mom. Yeah, you see her mom. Yeah. Her mom's in it a lot. The other kids, not so okay. much. I don't know. I, I read some reference to that and then it made me think and it got me thinking about this movie because I had the same issue with the parents just not really giving that much of a shit, particularly Ryan Philippe's, who must be beleaguered to <laughs> degree and freddie prince apparently lives on a boat so who knows what's going on there but yeah it, it's one of those things i think it just had to make the decision that the parents weren't going to be involved not at all yeah they're cut out to a point like helen's parents are never at the beauty pageant <laughs> there's these big events they go to that should involve family members on some level and they're just non-existent well, like to a be point the beauty pageant no. just not no 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 in no. the celebration no she's got the one drunk dad and we never see the mom. Like, ever. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that just didn't bother me. I mean, I think you have to kind of do it that way. No, like I said, you have to lean back and just let the experience hit you moment by moment. If you try to piece it together, nothing works. Nothing fits. It falls apart. Which is always the problem when we do a kind of a breakdown show like we do with these. Because a lot of these movies that are entertaining and fun to watch just don't necessarily hold up to intense scrutiny. Yes. Entertaining and fun to watch. Nick sounds like he had a grand old time with this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because nothing happens for the first half of the movie because I'm not counting Max and we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's kind of what I liked about it, because it has this interesting undercurrent to the film that a lot of slasher movies or horror movies around this don't. The characters are generally somewhat vapid, but it's distinctly about innocence lost. And not in the usual, you know, you had sex, so you got to get a pitchfork in the, you know, up the ass kind of way that most slasher movies have. But it. The most famous of the Friday the 13th kills. <laughs> but it, it's, you know, it's these kids who have these hopes and dreams. And as you find out really in the part of the movie where we're talking about right now is that because of this and because of the trauma of this, their lives essentially fell apart. Except yep. Brian Philippe's who fuck him. But even then, their friendship fell apart. Their relationships fell apart. They all clearly borderline hate each other. Except Freddie Prince, again, because it's like hating, you know, the stupid puppy. Well, because we learned that Ray and Julie broke up. Yep. Because just the distance and the pain of it all. And yeah, Barry and Helen broke up because they just couldn't handle it either. And that's the next scene is that she goes to find Helen. Yeah, because while they've lost touch, theirs is probably... Top to bottom, the entire film, the healthiest and strongest of them all, you know, due to 
the pain of it all. They haven't kept in touch because of distance. But one of the first things she does is hook up with Helen again. And their relationship blooms over the course of this film again. They probably had the most hope of like staying together for the rest of their lives as a friendship you know, of anyone in this film, in my opinion. It's also the scene where her sister is so gleeful at her sister telling failure. her that yeah. she's still there. You expect she had to go rub one out oh afterwards. She enjoyed this so much. <laughs> like the pure venom coming off of her voice in this. It's just Yes, Helen, Sarah Michelle Gellar's character did not in fact go to New York. She's instead working at the perfume counter in a small town department store. Which I mentioned specifically because it's going to come up in relation to another movie we're going to talk about. I'm surprised you didn't talk about the uh, music cutover. There's like a cutover from where she gets the letter to town where they're doing Great Life by Goat Boy. <laughs> Which I've always liked. Uh, yeah, it wasn't one of those songs that particularly clicked with me. But I do like the band Goat Boy. Because, <laughs> you know, Goat Boy. Goat Boy. So yeah, New York didn't work for Helen. She had to come back home. She's working for her sister. She's clearly not happy. This is when Julie shows her the letter, and this is where Helen has the, we were so careful. Like. How is this possible? So after establishing this, they say, all right, well, we got to talk to the rest of the crew. So they go to visit Brian Philippe, who has not mellowed in the intervening year. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, but Barry quickly just blows the whole thing off. He says, you both look like shit run over twice. Do you even know this is related? That's when Julie brings forth the information about David Egan. Yes. That she did the research. And determined that David Egan's body was found and that he's the one that they are responsible for the death of. The police call an accidental drowning, luckily. But they're trying to figure out, well, then who would care about David? Who would be responsible for this? And Barry's like, no, no, no. It had to be Max. He was the only one other person there. Let's go talk to him. So they go back into town to go talk to Max. Talk to Max. <laughs> <laughs> Which is true. Because, like, you know, Barry goes in to talk to him by himself and basically beats the crap out of him. Without ever getting a solid confirmation that Max did it or even knows what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> and what I like about this scene best is that it's another one of those scenes where you just don't like there's no winners. Everybody in this scene is a douchebag. So like you, you theoretically in another movie, that Max character, you would feel bad that he gets his ass kicked. But you don't because he nah. clearly deserves it. <laughs> and he's not a person. But the person kicking his ass is also a douchebag. So really, there's no winners here. <laughs> yeah, uh, Barry ends up scratching Max's face with a hook because we have to insert as many hook references as possible because nothing has fucking happened yet. They end up running into Ray, who has one of my fun lines in the movie. So like they walk up and he goes, hey, how y'all doing? He just gets off a boat, you know, and he goes, well, what, what you up to? He goes, oh, I'm, uh, I work on that boat over there. Points to the one behind them. Which is like, well, then why the hell are you getting off that boat right here? I don't understand <laughs> That's why the he's one working he lives on one on. boat. Yeah, he's like, he's like, you know, I'm working on this boat, but I actually work on that boat over there. He's like, make up your damn mind, Ray. <laughs> I just feel like Ryan Philippe doesn't even look. He's just like, who gives a shit? Because you shouldn't. It's like, okay. Ray gets stuck at home. He's a fisherman. That's it. That's the end of the story. You know, they don't really even delve into it that much. But, you know, Ray and Julie get a talking. And, you know, Ray agrees it was probably Max. Could be Max. He starts to ask her about school and she quickly deflects to the job where he ends up talking about his missing father. Because seriously, we're going to do this again. We're going to talk about missing dads who took off and then have it not matter to the fucking story whatsoever. We're just really doing our best to cover the fact that we don't want to deal with parents in this movie. <laughs> it's so cheap. I don't know. I felt like it explained a lot about Ray Prince Jr.'s acting. Or Freddie Prince, or whatever the fuck. This is why you don't do names, huh? If you're going to attack him, you got to do the names. <laughs> <laughs> actually, isn't Freddie Prince's Jr.'s dad actually famous? Isn't he a comedian yes. or something? Yes. Yes. 
Probably named Freddie Prince because of the junior. I'm smart. Correct. Smart. <laughs> smart guy. Really follow those clues. No wonder I enjoyed this movie more than Nick. <laughs> <laughs> but like after this conversation is the first murder that I don't say happened. I, I don't buy it. It doesn't fit. It doesn't do anything. It really feels like the producer sent in a note going, hey, uh, you know what? Can you kill someone? Nothing's happened yet. Can we just shoehorn in a murder to get this but ball But that's rolling? exactly what happened. Yeah, and it breaks the film. Because they, <laughs> they, up until this point, and really for a while now, there were no established consequences or danger to any of the main no, characters. No, none so at all. So they, they run it back, and that's why they kill Max. It was a reshoot that was inserted so that it ups the stakes that this guy is actually deadly and that people are actually going to die. But it breaks everything, because the only reason anything else makes sense is if this guy has an obsessive compulsion to take them out on the same day he was hit. Everything else is him building up to this moment of like, when the day comes, you will you know, get your due on 4th of July, like I got hit. You know, Everything is about this build up to compulsion. And instead, he just randomly offs a kid who had nothing to do with the matter days before. It's like, what the hell is going on here? I had two kind of thoughts about this. Oh, I want to hear this. And my note, my note says this. There really doesn't seem to be any reason to kill Johnny Galecki. None. He was technically there in that he drove by, but that's thin. So you you could say that that, you know, in in our body experience, you know, looking down at his body before he jumps back into it, he saw Max drive by and I'm like, I'm gonna get you too later. Oh my god, you're worse at this than I am. No, no. <laughs> see, this is what I know I get I get on your shit about inserting stuff. The other reason wow. I thought that this might work, and this one is much more reasonable, is that this guy encountered max in any fashion prior to this he works on the dock he was just ran into him at a bar had to sell some fish to him oh. any encounter with him and he's like look i'm gonna do some murders <laughs> fucking starting with this shithead and that one i gotta say feels reasonable to me because i didn't feel bad when max got off i mean it was like all right there's no reason to kill him but was there not at all probably was because I max was a douchebag. Not to mention, this is the scene, supposedly, where, because the killer in this scene uses the hook that he's going to use from now on against Max, but he takes Max's hook to do it. So he didn't show up with a weapon. He walks in, picks a weapon randomly that he can get his hands on, and uses that against Max, and goes, hey, that was pretty nifty. I'll use this the rest of the fucking week. Like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> I've been planning this for a whole year, but I'm going to take him out for no reason with a random weapon, and then that'll be my primary weapon. It's so... It breaks everything. If Max wasn't such a shithead, I would agree with you completely. <laughs> but I was no. glad, A, no, no, he no, no, was no. out of the... I was glad he was out of the film at this point. I think it did establish that this guy, that, you know, people were going to die in this, whatever, because nobody dies... No, in, it's, nobody dies in the book. Don't get me wrong. I understand why they did it. If you approach it as we're looking for set moments to get set emotional reactions, you can do it. But as a story goes, as trying to express a tale, it's bullshit. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't care because I was so glad he was out of the film. Doesn't fix it. It fixed one problem I had, so I'm good. <laughs> but, you know, then we cut away from that to uh, Barry going to the gym. Yes, Barry hanging out at the gym, doing a little kickboxing routine. The gym, which is also at the docks. Yep, everything, everything is, at, everything the is at the docks. <laughs> because this massive town that can handle this massive party is just all at the docks. <laughs> at 
which point there's a... He's in the gym. He does his kickboxing. He swears he hears something, but he kind of blows it off. He goes into the shower, hears something else. Is like, hey, is anybody there in this public gym, which everybody comes and uses? Oh, wait, <laughs> right. Why do I care about this? <laughs> and this is one of those out. nights where everyone in town's supposed to be inside. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> so then he goes to his locker and finds a Polaroid of his car that says, I know. He walks two rows away, not overly slowly, to like see if anybody's there, comes back, and then finds his jacket missing. Like in the time it's taken him to go look two rows over, this dude has rushed in, grabbed the jacket, and bolted. What? <laughs> the speed at which the killer operates in some of the instances of this movie are rather amazing. It's and amazing. It gets quite literal here in a moment because Ryan Phillippe's character runs outside to see his car has been started being driven by this mysterious figure and rips the hell out of there in reverse real fast. This guy's a hell of a fucking driver. So let's put this into into perspective. He got into the gym, which has a guy at the front desk manning it, got past him somehow without being seen, got in, did all this shit, got out again without being seen and takes off. Yeah. With the car. It's like, what? And he's still slower than the killer in urban legend. Yeah, we'll get to that. Yep. (laughs) But in terms of him building up to killing these characters on a specific date, like Nick mentioned, it's interesting the degree of care he put into that because yes, his first instance when he has Ryan Philippe cornered is to Kool-Aid man him through a whole fucking building. It's like, like, what? I know he's going to survive. It's the problem. It's like, it doesn't work. Because, okay, so if he's determined to kill him on the day, why risk wasting him with the car? And if you're okay with killing him, then why didn't he just freaking do it when you're standing over top of him after he hit him with the car? You might as well ask, why doesn't Ryan Phillippe run left or right instead of straight away from the car? (laughs) God only knows. That's the Prometheus protocol. You have to abide by it. Oh. Nice. When I was watching this, my legitimate thought was, I don't remember Ryan Philippe dying this early in the movie. Right? And then it cuts him in the hospital. I was like, no shit. (laughs) (laughs) Which only makes sense if the guy was stupid about hitting with the car, but still determined to kill him on the right day, which then ruins the max kill. It's like everything about this is problematic. But he did keep the jacket. He did keep the jacket, which comes up later. For reasons passing understanding. So once again, Barry's in the hospital. And he's making acquisitions towards Ray for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> just just picks Ray out of the blue. Like, what? <laughs> See, that didn't bother me because, I mean, fuck Ray, too. Nobody in this movie is likable. Jake, Jake. And Haish isn't so bad. Jake, it's not okay to accuse people of murder because you don't like them. Oh, I beg to differ. Just because it works in your favor <laughs> doesn't mean it's logical or makes sense. It's still funny. can't argue with that (laughs) he picks on ray because that's what ray is there for is to be picked on he is the goofest he is the duh of this film the the problem is he does it all throughout the picture look i'm not defending the logic of this no i just it made sense perfectly fine that people would shit on ray because ray's got that big shit on me face (laughs) the problem is is that they do a poor job of like throughout the whole film they're doing this like moving the cups like where's the killer bit where's the killer where they like show like everyone in the goddamn town owns the same slicker (laughs) so that you everyone is a suspect and they try to lean heavy on that maybe it is ray maybe ray is the killer and here's all the reasons that these people are going to blame him except there are no real reasons even if the killer wanted him to be thought of as like a decoy he doesn't actually ever plant everything that makes that happen 
He just does less to Ray. That's it. <laughs> hey, you know, and it, it makes no sense. Yeah, no, a lot of it doesn't make sense. And most of it, like I said, it feels like there's deleted scenes. But it's interesting because, again, Kevin Williamson wrote this before Scream. And one of the things that Scream hangs its hat on is the logical consistency in most everything that happens. Yep. Like, there's no point, you know, where, where it doesn't make sense once you understand in Scream that there's two killers. Yeah, Scream's great. Scream's fantastic. Which makes me wonder if a lot of the fallacies in this are the work of director, producers, notes, whatever, oh, in the studio. I- Versus the original script. I would very likely blame producer and director in these cases. But it could also be just Kevin Williamson writing the traditional slasher film, which are always devoid of logic and common sense or anything that really makes a lot of sense in terms yes, of but- going from A to B. You know, it's like Jason always walks, but he gets there twice as fast as everybody else. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but it's hard for me to buy that coming from the same guy who did the Scream franchise and the faculty. I feel that he's clearly someone who's proven he has the ability. Right. And I feel that he had something that was better than this that ended up being beaten by someone else. Yeah, I'm not blaming him. The long and short of it is I'd be curious to read the original script. Yes. Of this versus what actually, you know, was filmed or cut or whatever. Because again, you know, we're arguing about this because it's our shtick, but <laughs> I, you know, I don't really feel particularly strongly about any of these points other than I do think Ray is there to be shat on as a character. Yes. But it's just curious why, first of all, I don't think any of it really matters that much because what I said before is that, you know, these movies don't bear up to critical heavy duty analysis. It's not talking like we're movie scientists or something. (laughs) You know, when you watch a movie a couple of times in a short span of thing, you start to notice this stuff. And, you know, it's a teen slasher film. It's not really designed to do that. It's designed to be a moment to moment fun thing that you watch on a Friday night. And I think it, it accomplishes that goal fine. You know, us as 45-year-old bitter men at the tail end of our youth and exuberance watching these. I'm all used up! (laughs) You know, with only nostalgia to to hold on to. It's not a movie for us. But it was, you know, when we were kids. And when I saw it, you know, I I enjoyed it to the extent that I ever enjoy a slasher film. I might have enjoyed this more if I was younger. Yes. Yeah, and certainly drunker. Oh, yes. But just talk about this makes me want to go drink right now. (laughs) <laughs> so anyway what's his name they're in the hospital and then they decide to go visit Anne Hache. well they decide to track down someone close to David Egan they figure that the person motivated to do this would be someone who was close to him and so they'd want to track down and avenge his killer turns out he has a sister yeah so Julie uses her library use role to track down details <laughs> on David's girlfriend's death <laughs> is there a square on Cthulhu sheets for old ass search engines <laughs> <laughs> Which was one of my favorite parts of these movies was seeing the old ass websites like the uh, the search engine in this and the goth to goth dating site that we're going to get. Yes. In Urban Legend. <laughs> it's like, well, we looked it up on Web Crawler. I bet you did. And they end up going to visit David's sister, played by Anne Hesch, also from the uh, Psycho reboot. Oh, what she? Yeah. And she was one of my favorite parts of this. I thought she was pretty fun. She did a good job. She should. She was 10 years older than everybody else in it. 29 when this was filmed. She knew what she was doing. Yeah. So I'll go ahead and mention just kind of talking about how you reacted to the movie. One of the things for this movie for me was that the movie comes across as too somber for me for the script. Mm. Like it feels like it should be playing a little bit looser. It should be playing just a little bit more lively. And it's just playing everything a little too close to the chest. It doesn't feel as fun as it should which is one of my takeaways from it. Respect. But Anne Heche being the exception to that, the Anne Heche sequences are one of the bits where we get, it's like, oh, this feels closer to what I enjoy. This has some, some oomph to it. This moves well. And I thought she was a ton of fun. Nice. 
Yeah, I, I enjoyed her in this. I enjoyed those sequences because they hit the right weird, creepy, red herring-ish kind of vibe, I thought. And she has a really impressive house for that, where she has boarded up windows, where everything is backlit with light coming through. She has a backyard abattoir, as we find out later. She's got the, you know, I don't get many visitors. <laughs> it's a lot of atmosphere. She decides to make her entrance here in a couple scenes by body checking a car on the driver's side door, shouting, Hey! <laughs> and then quietly, you forgot your cigarettes. Which is hilarious, because no one has smoked this entire movie! <laughs> <laughs> They are Helen's cigarettes, and she has never touched one the entire film. <laughs> but on top of that, like they show up saying they have car trouble just to try to like bait their way in so they could use the phone while like looking for details. And of course, Julie immediately runs into the same slicker that's used, you know, by the killer because everyone's a suspect. <laughs> so she makes them tea while they, they snoop around. She tells them about what happened after his death. She had a visit by a person named Billy Blue. Mm. Billy Blue would come and visit. And so this becomes their new suspect, whoever this Billy Blue is. And Julie's a little broken up by this encounter because she's seen the lives that they've affected from this murder they've committed. It wasn't just this one guy they took out. It's affecting everyone in his life. Well, they have that, they have that great conversation in the car. What happened to us and all this. And it's, Yeah, it's, you, you were talking earlier about Sarah Michelle Gellar's performance. And this was, I thought... This is a key moment. Yeah, one of the better performances in the movie is the bit where she says, I miss you. And then before that, she says, you know, we used to be best friends. You know, Can we at least be best co-conspirators? <laughs> it's this great moment where it's clear that, you know, even though this trauma has separated them and, and wrecked their lives to some degree that Helen would like to salvage their relationship and that matters to her and she matters to her. And Julie returns that sentiment. You really feel the bond of their previous friendship and hope for them in this moment. You want this to work for them. It doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> but you hope. You hope. Speaking of hope, Sarah Michelle Gellar returns home. Oh my God. Where her father has <laughs> apparently given up hope on the baseball game he's watching. <laughs> I assume it's going poorly because he appears to be drinking bourbon on the rocks. So I yep. assume that the game has gone to shit. <laughs> this seems to be a consistent place for him. Like this is where he belongs in this moment, sitting in his chair with bourbon. Like she doesn't even bat an eye. She just walks right past him. Again, my dad's dead. My dad's dead. My dad's a drunk who doesn't move from the couch. You know, the, it's like, Let's establish why these dads aren't getting involved. <laughs> he's probably watching the Braves, and the Braves in the late 90s were good. So I don't know why he's drinking. <laughs> and apparently her mean-as-hell sister is just hanging out in a room, hears the squeak of floorboards as Sarah Michelle Geller comes out and says, Oh, <gasps> my sister's home. I gotta go make her miserable before she sits down. I must attack. <laughs> but before that happens, Sarah goes to the kitchen for a little bit. And then while she's in the kitchen and her dad is completely oblivious to the world around him, the man in the slicker comes in the front fucking door and up the stairs. Because while he has this elaborate ploy that he's going to get them on the day it happened, he's more than happy to risk everyone in that goddamn house and himself just to go mess with her this one time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. He is kind of an asshole. But the ends to what he goes to is like some things are like brilliantly planned and some are just like, why the hell did that ever work? <laughs> And what he what happens, she has the confrontation with her sister. She goes to bed and then she wakes up and her hair's been cut. Yep. She's got the crown on her head. But only kind of cut? Like he gave her a trim? But he cut like a sizable chunk off the one side. Yeah. But here's the thing. You get the impression that he came in just to write the word soon on her mirror and take off. 
he overheard the conversation about her hair with her sister said, hey, that's a great idea. You know, <laughs> like cutting her hair was an afterthought after the he goes, her sister's worse than I am. I'm going to follow her lead. I know what to do with this. <laughs> Which lends credence to his sneaking abilities, because presumably he only showed up with a hook at most, then had to improvise cutting hair. So it means he had to root for scissors somewhere. <laughs> Presumably he rooted through drawers at some point. The net result of him cutting her hair is she wears that big hat in one scene. Which is cute. I like the hat. And has her hair in the next scene. I had that as a note. I was like, the hat looks nice. It wasn't a bad look. It was a little blossom. But you know. But what's funny <laughs> is, is that this prompts her to get her hair fixed, which I don't know if she had the time to do that for, but she gets her hair fixed and it looks better than it did before. So it's like, thanks, killer. You're looking out for me. You knew. You knew. <laughs> well, the killer's been to a few Lilith fairs by this point. So, you know, he knows what's up. Now, having received the new haircut, <laughs> it goes to everyone. They decide to go visit Freddie Prince, who is warmly greeted by Ryan Phillippe shouting, You're going to die! And he then punches him with his broken hand. <laughs> well, you're skipping ahead a little bit because the first thing that happens. Oh, no, Julie... no, no, my favorite part. How can I skip my favorite part? <laughs> Julie's driving the car to Helen's. They're all going to meet at Helen's. And she hears this noise. What's this noise coming from the trunk? I better go take a look. So she pulls over, opens the trunk, and it's Max's body with Barry's jacket and crabs. And a, a shit ton of, of crabs. crabs. It's just like, what the hell is this? It's the most famous scene in the movie is what it is. This it's and her ridiculous. yelling. Man. So yeah, she runs to Helen's, which this is not a big town. This is a fishing town. This town should not be huge. She runs to Helen's and comes back with her and Barry, and they open the trunk, and it's completely clean. <laughs> Not a crab, not a claw, not a scale, not a stain, nothing. It's like it was never there. It's impossible. There's just no way he showed up without anyone else in that town seeing him open the trunk, move a dead body with crabs in it successfully and completely, and then take off before they see him. There's just no way. This was my favorite part of the movie. I love the scene where she just takes off running. She's like, like, fuck this, and then just fucking Scooby-Doo's out of there. This, that, she 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 comes back and she's like, it was here, it was here. And they're like, we believe you. And she like flips out. And she goes, what are you waiting for? And then I looked at the movie. I was just like, I asked the same thing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and that that's the most famous scene in the movie is the what are you waiting for? That's yeah. the money shot. That's the bit from the trailer I remember. But it had been so long since I'd seen it. I didn't remember who the killer was. And it got to the sequence with the trunk. I said, well, at this point, my front runner is Ocean Master. <laughs> because the only solution to that trunk sequence is that the crabs are in on it. And then the crabs lifted the body and scuttled it out of the trunk. <laughs> I, it, it makes me wonder if it actually did happen. It happened. Like if she just yeah, it imagined it because she's got some sort of point about PTSD. I assume not. I assume this is me trying to make excuses in very Nick fashion for the movie itself. But uh, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, I'm taking side shots at you. You're saying this movie would have been improved if a character saw something that wasn't real and didn't happen? It was a dream. No, I'm not saying it, it was, was a improved. dream the whole time. Oh, we've I'm we've just saying that might have been what they were going for. That's all. <laughs> not saying a dream sequence. Oh, I'm saying PTSD. God. Mental illness is something else. Uh, dream sequence and hallucinations are different. It's okay. <laughs> it's real if it's a hallucination. Yeah, that's it. Anyway, so <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not making excuses for it. I'm just saying I'm wondering if maybe that's what they were going for. No, definitely not. I mean, it's probably giving them too much credit. But again, I, I would be interested in reading the script. I won't, but I'd be interested. I would potentially entertain your theory if he didn't have Barry's jacket. 
There's no reason why she would have thought that Barry's jacket would be in a situation. Yeah, I mean, like there's that. no reason for anything, really. So, yeah, <laughs> I just, but it, it's one of those things, and I'll admit it bugs me. Like, how did they get all them crabs out of there without no any way. crab shit there's all no over way. there? You know? They're in on it, I'm telling you. Like, that trunk would at least be damp. Remotely, even a little bit. Nothing, got nothing. But it's still funny when she runs away, because she just Scooby-Doo's out of there, and it's great. But there's that leg windmill go invisible with dust flying yep. up effect. Zoom! So they all get together, and Julie puts out her theory that it's this Billy Blue character. Which, we're going to do a little spoiler here. Because <laughs> we learn later that Billy Blue is actually Ray. So Ray, feeling bad about the whole situation, was going to see David's sister... And gave her a false name and was just trying to, like, do what he could. Give her something else, too. (laughs) He was doing his best to try to make some amends for what had happened. But here's the problem. So at this point, I could understand him not immediately going. Here's the problem. Singular. (laughs) With this situation particularly. (laughs) So him not immediately going, oh, yeah, that was me. I get it. You know, I can see it like, oh, deer in headlights kind of frozen moment or like, oh, I don't really think, you know, anything. You know, "Ah, I don't know. And then she's like, well, you know, I'm going to go talk to her. I'm going to take the yearbook. I'm going to show her the yearbook. I'm going to find out who this Billy Blue is. Okay, two things. One, she is guaranteed to find out who you are. It is going to happen. (laughs) You're in the damn yearbook. You're going to be found out. Two, there is a killer after all four of you. Why slow everyone down and let her go off and handle this thread and not just go, oh, wait, I know this bit looks bad, but I'm Billy Blue. Instead of you finding out later on your own, which looks even worse, I'm going to tell you now. <laughs> no. <laughs> He's just like, yeah, you you go do that. Go find out who Billy Blue is. Yeah. And that's it. It's so. That one I can explain away. Oh. He's stupid. Clearly. <laughs> but like, He's just dumb. But he's stupid to a level that I have not had suitable backing experience for in the film. Like, he's vapid. He doesn't have much to him there. But he's a very two-dimensional character. But he hasn't, like, actively done something that stupid before this moment. Yeah, for all that we crack on Freddie Prince Jr.'s performance, part of it is the movie is making Herculean efforts to keep him in play as a potential suspect. Yep. And it's ridiculous, yeah. the degrees they lead It's to. ridiculous. <sighs> and the movie doesn't do that well with anybody. Like, it doesn't imply that somebody might be a suspect very well at all. Loose connections to everything, which we get a lot of in the next scene. You know, unlike Scream, where it takes delight in pointing out that everybody's a suspect. Yeah. This one tries to do it, but it does it with no joie de vivre. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that takes us to the very next scene where it's parade time again. It's the yearly celebration. So Helen, as last year's winner, is on a parade float, you know, just kind of like showing off and doing her thing. And she sees a slicker on a guy in a town full of fishermen. Panics. <laughs> tells Barry, who chases after him, beats up some random old guy. You know, it's just like probably not the first time Barry has beaten up a random old guy. But you know, at this point, like Helen sees another slicker in the crowd, and another, and another, and she finally sees one up on a damn roof with an actual hook, and it's like, well, what are you gonna do? <laughs> Why is everybody wearing slickers, man? It ain't raining. Not at it's all. It's a fishing town, but not everybody is bringing in Gordons. I mean, there's it's- not a cloud in the sky. And it's July. I've been to North Carolina in July. It's hot. It's hot. But yeah, Julie goes back to David Egan's sister with the yearbook. You get this random jump scare with Missy and the knife. It's so pointless. It looks like she's coming to stab her. You're like, wait, what? (laughs) Yeah, just sitting there, knife out. This is the backyard abattoir sequence where she's got an old school meat grinder. Right. And an assortment of animals to butcher. (laughs) 
And this is where we get the whole bit about her brother having, you know, committed suicide and whatnot and revealed that, oh, shit, it wasn't your brother who we found that night. Yep. So this one, she figures it out, too, right? Yeah, she, what she realizes is that the suicide note that Missy has is actually a death threat from, from the else. real killer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so she realizes, oh, wait, this person must have held David responsible for the death of his girlfriend. So who's connected to the girlfriend? She goes back to the library. <laughs> you know, the library search rule. <laughs> she could learn a thing or two there. All right. <laughs> she gets a check mark. That was a reference to our lack of investigation skills in our <laughs> ongoing Cthulhu role-playing game. Our characters are much closer to the kids in this movie than they are seasoned investigators. <laughs> yes, yes. So yeah, now we get Sarah Michelle Gellar's character returning, like Nick mentioned, as the previous year's winner. Uh, there's an offhand line she has with her sister where they say she has to do this. She also enters to the song Beautiful Girl, from which I associate with Singing in the Rain. It predates that, but that's what I associate it with. I just really wanted the MC for the night to do the spoken bed after. For lounging in her boudoir, this simple plain pajama. Her cloak is trimmed with monkey fur to lend a dash of drama. That whole sequence. <laughs> and then while she's on stage for this bit, she sees another person in a slicker, this time vaguely heading in the direction of the back of the hall, which would lead to the balcony where Ryan Philippe is camped out. Sure enough, he makes his way up there, goes after Ryan Philippe with a hook. And she very unrealistically doesn't just let that happen. <laughs> she gets off the stage and goes down the aisle screaming, ah, he's after him. He's going to kill him. And so what does everyone do? restrains her what <laughs> like she's the, like she, they just they immediately stop her like no no you can't go he's like but he's killing him like oh no uh, honey you, you have a job to do here <laughs> <laughs> and only after he's done basically gutting him with this hook do they finally go oh wait are you actually telling us something is going on and they go to the balcony where there's all there's no like there's like they show you a small trickle of blood off the side later, but where he was at, there's nothing. It's just clean as a whistle. Just not a single sign of anything. Which, again, is only feasible if the crabs are the cleanup crew. <laughs> and they just scuttled the body <laughs> out. Not to mention, this is the middle of the competition while they're doing parades and shit. The whole town's up and lively, and somehow he snuck this body out of the building outside to where nobody was... This movie made me mad. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, if the cop in this scene is any... And really, every scene that this particular cop is in, if that's any indication of the police force in this town, yeah, the body thing doesn't bother me. Could have just carried it down Main Street, be like, got a body. They'd be like, <laughs> good on you, buddy. But this starts the really impressive chasing with Sarah Michelle Geller. Yes. Well, there are many plot holes that should be addressed in this scene. It still holds up. It is tense, and it is lengthy, and you are with her the whole time. You very much want her to get out of this. And feel for her. It was a very well done scene. It's just the beginning of it that's problematic, where the cops driving her home to the suddenly abandoned town. <laughs> well, there's problems there. There's problems in this store. There's problems at the end of it. Also, the guy randomly is going to kill a cop. Yeah, because he knew he was coming oh down God. that alley. So yeah. So here's the problem. So he's just killed her boyfriend. So there's one of two possibilities that are happening here. She is either driving herself or being driven. So what has happened is, is that while she's being taken home by the cop and confessing everything, and he blows it off completely as a urban legend, like he doesn't take her seriously at all, he comes across a blockade, which he should fucking know about being the cop. They should have put those in place for the goddamn parade. Yeah. He should know why that's there, but he doesn't. He's like, oh, a blockade. I'll take this alley. So he takes the goddamn alley, 
where the killer is waiting for him with a broken down car. Now, <laughs> coming back to this, it's a broken down car, so he's got a plan. Well, what the hell do I do if somebody else tries to help me? Who the fuck knows? All right, he's got a goddamn pile behind the truck of a goddamn it. When are they getting here? You know, <laughs> so, he's got an impenetrable rain slicker plus six. Right. He's just taking anybody out that comes. He could have six bodies in there. You don't know. But now he's got to think it's either A, she's coming down this road by herself, in which case she'll see me and help me out, right? No, she'll drive right the fuck over me, given the chance. Or she'll be driven by somebody else, and now i got to take them out too? Like, this is like, it, it's so elaborate and super sloppy at the same time. <laughs> yeah, my one note for this was killing a cop seems like an unnecessary amount of heat. <laughs> Unless yeah. he gets the crabs to clean it up too. Like if I was him in this moment, I just see the cop coming down and I'd be like, fuck, and just close the hood and get in and take off. And be like, I'll get her later tonight. You know, it's like, <laughs> but now he's like, okay, let's do this. So the cop gets out, walks up and he hooks him and then takes the time to clean the hook. Because <laughs> you don't want to go killing with a dirty hook. <laughs> Might get tetanus. I don't want to give her a blood disease from this guy when I'm killing her. That could be bad. But no, it's so god-awful. The planning of it makes no sense whatsoever. But it is tense. It does give her the moment to, like, bash the window out with her feet, which, you know, cop cars are made to let you do. And she gets out of the car and takes off running through the, yes. Look, in the 90s they were. Don't ask me how I know. (laughs) And now the completely dead and devoid of anyone town as she just runs. And the place she goes is to her sister's store where she's banging on the window trying to get her to open the door which is locked because she's closing shop. So the guy's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And by the time she gets the door open, there's no way in fuck her sister did not see him behind her. But whatever, okay, fine, she didn't. He's in the store. <laughs> she goes, okay, well, I better go lock out the back door. Because while I took care of this one and then it was futzing around, I clearly didn't do the back door. So now I'm going to go get that, which he's super fast and gets to fast enough where he can get in and hide before they can see him coming in. Oh my God, it hurts. Never mind it. This was a store in the Deep South opened on uh, 4th of July. There's no way in hell it's closing in the middle of the celebration. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, but also they were, if you listen to them, they're also doing inventory on the 4th of July. Who does that? Oh, Jesus. So yeah, Helen goes upstairs to like, I think, call the police. I forget why she's upstairs. But her sister's downstairs and gets murdered, unceremoniously dragged away. Yeah, this guy's got great upper body strength. He's lugs her away with one arm. Yeah. It, it, she just, you know, whoosh. But then, you know, Helen calls for her, gets no response, and goes downstairs to look for him. Now, this, I love this part, because she goes down slowly. She's walking down, and, like, all the mannequins are covered, because, you know, stores do that. And, so, <laughs> you know, whenever they close stores, any store I've seen, they cover all the mannequins for the night. Anyway. It's creepier that way. No shit, but. <laughs> <laughs> she gets to, like, the middle of the row of the mannequins, and the light goes out. And in the time... It takes her to just turn around. And the time it takes her to just turn around, the killer has gotten from the light switch to the place in the mannequins he wants to be and thrown a piece of plastic over his head to look like one of the mannequins. (laughs) To be fair, he might have had the plastic over him beforehand. We don't know. Have you run with plastic? I mean, maybe. Again, the 90s are hazy. The crinkling alone. He is like a damn ninja then, if that was the plan. Right? Well, we have established he has ninja skills. Crabs were manning the light switch. I just see his finger in the light switch going, I am the knight. <laughs> Click. <You know? laughs> I think we're discounting Eric's theory that he's the ocean master. here. He's Orm. Because the crabs as accomplice, 
really does explain everything. If there are well-controlled crabs that are on his side, it makes a lot more sense. Accomplice crustaceans, you know? <laughs> he ends up chasing her to the back of the store where she uses the oldest type of elevator I've ever seen to get to the second floor. Like, he just misses her. She gets to the top, and then seconds later, he's up there. She goes out a window, bolts down an alley, and he beats her there again. Not to mention, he randomly chose the exact right alley she was going to go down. Like, the chances here are, like, astonishing. And not to mention, there's a parade. There's a second damn parade. There was the day parade, and now there's a night parade happening while the town's completely dead and empty. Not only is the parade happening, it's one of those parades yeah, that maybe takes, it's Lasonia. It's one of those parades that takes place, like, on the sidewalk so that nobody can watch it. <laughs> she stops for a second, God knows why, to look behind her, which gives the killer plenty of time to jump out and just waste her right there. No, none of this logically makes, makes sense. Hands down. I don't down, know. I, so I have been arguing for bottom, years that night parades don't make sense. That, but that you've been telling said, me it's a normal experience. That being said, as much as there are problems throughout the entire chase scene. He's just ignoring me at this point. It was fun. <laughs> It was high Yeah, tension. it's a great scene. It's, it's a great it was, scene. It was really well done. She sells it. You really feel her terror. And it is one of the best chase scenes I've seen in a movie like this. Logic aside. The logic hurts me, but I had a good time watching it. Yeah, it's just one of the better dramatic scenes in a slasher film. Like you said, you have to put your mind off the details and just enjoy what's being presented to you. Mm -hmm. But it works, and it's a good scene. Especially at the end, where she almost makes it and then doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense, but it's still, you know, accomplishes what it sets out to do. It hits all the right emotional points. For the length of time it is, it's impressive it holds you as long as it does. I really enjoyed it. So with Sarah Michelle Gellar and Ryan Philippe out of the equation, so that leaves us with Jennifer Love Hewitt's character of Julie and Freddie Prinze as Ray. Julie is meeting up with Ray at his boat, and... <laughs> goes to hop on board when she takes note of the name of his boat. Billy Blue. Yep. At which point, Freddie Prinze does an amazing job. Being, oh, I'm not a suspect. <laughs> <laughs> I was with her the whole way with just run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because even if he's not the killer, he doesn't seem like he's going to be the best at protecting you. So just, just leave Ray to his own devices. Uh, so bad. Again, if he had told her the Billy Blue things up front, they just sailed off. <laughs> it been over. But yeah, so just turns out she's locked in the harbor. And Ray comes after her and he is knocked out by a good Samaritan who tells her to get on his boat. Specifically, he says, easy child. And much like exquisite, anybody who says easy child is the killer. <laughs> Except for Mother Abigail on the stand. She can get away with it. So spoiler, he is the killer. He is the guy they've been running from this whole time. And so as soon as she gets on the boat, he just walks away from Unconscious Ray, who he should have just fucking killed right there. But no. I, I have that note. Why doesn't he kill Unconscious Freddie Prince Jr.? He should have just, like, you know, if nothing else, kick him in the water and hope he drowns. Anything, you know? It's <laughs> but no, just leaves Unconscious Ray behind and gets on the boat where he's following her and she finds an orgy of evidence in the cabin countless like clips with their names and all this detail and they're like these photos that are impossible literally impossible <laughs> like shots of angles that he couldn't have been in without like them going hey who's the guy with the camera or like a low shot of helen in the parade when he was up on the roof you know it's like there's no way he has these photos yeah 
What's even worse is later on when they ask him, do you know no idea why he would have been stalking you? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the sequence where he comes clean about, it's me, yo. And then we get this extended chase sequence throughout the ship. He's got the one line I like. Kids like you should be out having fun, drinking, partying, running people over, getting away with murder. (laughs) (laughs) You know, for all his superpowers and established plans, he does rely on her not getting away with the impenetrable power of not being able to jump into water. Yeah, because she gets to the top of the boat and learns that they're already off to sea. And the time it's taken her to get into the boat, find the cabin and look at stuff, he has unhooked and unroped the boat, started it up, and gotten out of the harbor well enough where he can come into the cabin and it will automatically get out of the harbor without hitting everything else around it. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's not only fast, his boat is super speedy as well. <laughs> Isn't that the first thing you would fucking do? Oh, killer coming after me on a boat. Buy a boat. Just immediately jump off the boat. Don't almost die trying to get into the hull. <laughs> So at this point, he does chase her to the top of the ship after an extended chase within the belly of the ship. And as he has her cornered on top of the ship, we find out leading up to this that Ray, the Freddie Prince Jr. character, has also made his way onto the ship. Yeah, dipshit suddenly morphed into a superhero. <laughs> the killer suddenly has Julie cornered and has his hook in hand and has this sequence where that i really appreciated because his build-up line to getting ready to strike the killing blow on julie is i know all about accidents when she's you know saying it was an accident that we hit you i know all about accidents and then he is immediately undone by an accident because as he pulls (laughs) his hand back he is somehow able to snake his hand through it's baffling the way his hand gets caught like it's not that the hook gets caught his whole fucking hand sneaks in through like four loops of rope (laughs) then he looks at it like whoa and then (laughs) ray hits the lever sending this dude up by his hand at which point he makes the yelp from tom and jerry of as he goes flying up his hand gets severed when he reaches the apex which he takes quite well because he doesn't react to it he yells on the way up he doesn't say shit after that it is worth noting before this sequence she is hiding in the belly of the ship at one point gets to the ice locker where she finds all the bodies that he's been storing in the ice interesting uh trivia bit here none of that was ice it was gelatin it was all gelatin so that she could actually work in it without you know just freezing to death and also it was easier to clean up but yeah, still seems gross. Yeah, a little gross. But yeah, his hand gets chopped off. He falls in the water and they come back to the harbor. Yep. So we get a brief wrap up sequence with essentially, oh, that's enough of that. And well, the cop has that one line of body will turn up. They always do. <laughs> they usually do. So now we flash once again to the college. Julie is now of a much sunnier disposition and talking on the phone about how her grades have gone up and everything's obviously going better. And she's on the phone, presumably, with Ray and getting ready to hop in the shower. And Yeah, this is like, I think, the first invention of the push-up towel. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like, that's not, I don't know the physics behind that. And so someone who we do not see, but we assume is her roommate, says, oh, you've got a letter. So she hangs up the call and letters in the same size and envelope as the I know what you did last summer note. It's the same handwriting. Yep. (laughs) So it's obviously a fake out lead into, oh, is it the same guy, but opens it up, and nope, it's an invite to a frat party. Related. Has anybody ever sent anybody an invite to a frat party? Or do you just find out that they're happening? 
It's word of mouth. Not unless you're like pledging or something. Other than that, it's just tacked yeah. up on a bulletin board somewhere at best. She goes back into the shower and she left the shower running when she went to check the letter. So when she comes back, it's full of steam. And as she starts to close in on her shower stall towards the end, the shower door is shut and words have been written into the condensation, which are, I still know. And you got to give the killer credit for remembering, because as we soon find out, he's on the inside of the shower because the final shot of the film is this body coming crashing through the glass towards the camera. <laughs> you got to give him credit for knowing to write it that Backwards. she's going to see it reverse. Because otherwise, the ending of this film would have been Jennifer Love Hewitt coming in, narrowing her eyes and going, Wonk Lit's Eye. It's like, ah, shit! <laughs> <laughs> Ah, fuck it. And he just comes crashing through anyway. <laughs> now, I expect Jake hates this part of the movie most. No, but I didn't like it. I thought it was stupid. Well, it didn't happen. It's a dream sequence. Yeah, it has to be. Yeah, it 100% is. And the sequel actually backs that up. Does it? I don't think I've ever seen the sequel. I haven't either. The sequel immediately starts with a dream sequence and then her talking about she's still having these terrible nightmares. <laughs> and so it 100% connects to the first film and apologize. Basically rationalizes a way that you know that was a dream sequence it didn't happen and that's why she's still alive and living a normal life i still think it's one of the all-time great sequel names <laughs> i still know what you did last summer yeah if you like this episode let us know on twitter or on instagram or something because there are two i know what you did last summer sequels and two urban legend sequels so there's plenty of fodder for a follow-up don't don't do that to us <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to watch urban legend final cut uh no maybe a little and that's i know what you did last summer yeah i clearly liked it more than nick did i didn't love it but i like a little bit more rationality in my movies i mean if you're looking for a sit back and just watch kids getting killed this is still not a good movie because nothing happens for the first fucking half of it max doesn't count (laughs) but poor johnny galecki Johnny Galecki was murdered, Nick. So what? (laughs) (laughs) I think if you take Max out of it, it becomes this slow burn story of buildup that could have been cleaned up and made much more interesting and had all its action in the back half. And I think it would have survived off of that if done well. Instead, they decided to make it more of a slasher pick and they tried to fix that by ramming in a single kill in the beginning. And it just, everything just gets wrecked from it. I think it's a movie that had great potential and unfortunately, either the producers or director shat all over it. That's my feeling. I like that the, your big problem is Max's death, and I'm like, yes, he deserved to die, and I hope he burns in hell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not debating whether you got joy from it. I understand and respect that. <laughs> I think it just narratively hurts the film. I like this film because it tries to do something more with the characters themselves than most slasher pictures do. It has that undertone of how trauma can change the course of your life. They don't do it particularly well. It's not particularly sensitive to the topics or the concept of PTSD or, you know, logic. But it does have that aspect to it. And when you watch most slasher films, it's just, here's a couple of kids. Here's the nerdy one. Here's the goth one. Here's the other one. And uh, here's some knives. Have at. And this one tried to do a little bit more. It just doesn't do a good job with any of it. That's exactly why I don't pan the writer. I feel that, you know, I really wish I could see the original script because I feel he was doing something good. And I feel that he knew what he was doing. And if they had stayed closer to the original writing, I bet it would have been a much better film. 
I'd be curious to read the book. I'm not gonna, but I'd be curious to. Lois Duncan, I know, hated the movie because she didn't like that it was a slasher film. The book is not a slasher film. It's a teen mystery. Right. The person who is the killer in that is not this dude. He's a, it's actually the, essentially who would be David Egan just playing two roles. Mm. Okay. So. For me, there's stuff I liked about it. Parts of it are well constructed. It looks good for the most part. The score's pretty good on it. John Debney does a pretty good score for it. But in the end, the approach to the script felt a little bit too stoic. It needed to feel a little bit looser. I think part of that was casting. Mm -hmm. And it just needed to be more playful. So in the end, it was just kind of meh for me. Yeah. Look, it had a Boston song in it. So, I mean, it just can't be that bad in my book. Can you imagine how much more Jake would have liked From Beyond? If, <laughs> if even one Boston song had shown up. If Pretorius came out in his first appearance when they turned on the resonator. Tell me, Crawford, have you ever had to knock on wood? Well, <laughs> I know someone who has. I think he would have liked it easily five times more than he did. <laughs> Just still not much. I, I won't deny that. It would be weird <laughs> since that movie came out in like 85. And uh, the impression that I get came out, in, I think, in 97. So, you know, that, I would have been vastly more impressed with that movie on every level if it had predated Boston's. Actually, the Boston's formed in like 85, I think. Oh, wow. Jesus. First album was 89, I think. Nice. I'd have to check my dates. That's just off the top of my head. To transition us into the next movie. So I know what you did last summer was directed by Jim Gillespie, but in the course of making it, Neil Moritz, the producer, obviously there's a bunch of different people who applied for the job, and he received a trailer that was put together by an ambitious young filmmaker named Jamie Blanks, who at this point was just out of film school. He had done a short movie called Silent Number, was sent the script for I Know What You Did last summer. He really wanted the job, so he got his buddies together and made basically a concept trailer for what he thought the movie should be and sent that in to apply for the job. And at this point they had pretty much already committed to Gillespie, but Neil Moritz was really impressed with the trailer. And he said, I'm going to keep this Jamie Blanks guy in mind for, you know, another movie down the road, which ended up becoming urban legend, which was Jamie Blanks big Hollywood directorial debut. Yeah. And if you pick up the shout factory two disc Blu-ray on urban legend, which I'll just mention up front, It has a whole second disc of features. There's like three hours worth of interviews. If you like Urban Legend, pick it up. There's a shit ton of stuff on there. But during the course of this, they show you footage of the trailer he cut. So it's really interesting seeing these sequences you recognize from I Know What You Did Last Summer as imagined by this other director just shooting it with his friends. Huh. That's interesting. Plus, he's Australian, so I automatically kind of give him the benefit of the doubt, which I probably shouldn't because I did not care for this movie at all. <laughs> so here, here's the, the first note I have about Urban Legend and kind of how I feel about it. So we're doing four movies today. You know, we're doing I Know What You Did Last Summer, Urban Legend, Disturbing Behavior, and The Faculty. If you imagine everybody in these movies and all the talent making them was in a pool and you were drafting them like a fantasy baseball draft, <laughs> Urban Legend had fourth pick in everything (laughs) in talent actors actresses cinematographer uh director it just top to bottom it was easily the weakest of the four for me by a country mile but still kind of entertaining on some level except for the fact that it's about 30 minutes too long 
because they had fourth pick of editor too. <laughs> Yo, the editor on this is Jay Cassidy. He's done some great shit. He's done the pledge. He did Silver Linings Playbook, Ooh. Foxcatcher, oh. Star is Born. He also did Ballistic X versus Sever, but we can skip that one for a moment. Um, <laughs> so this was his training run. No, uh, kind of. But no, he <laughs> he'd done some quality stuff before this, and it's so Nick, you had seen this before, right? Yes. Okay. I hadn't. So this is the one coming in I hadn't seen at all. This is the one coming in I had maybe seen, but couldn't remember. I'll just go ahead and say my impression of Urban Legend up front. A few years ago, Nick and I got together and we watched a movie called Rigor Mortis. Yes! Which is a 2013 Hong Kong horror movie, which we've talked about before, which I won't get into details because we're almost certainly going to do it at some point. All I'm going to say is you have to watch it. It's great. It's, it's fascinating. It's this big homage to the Mr. Vampire series. And what I said to Nick after we watched it was that movie... It was a first time director. And I said to Nick, I said, that movie kind of feels like this director said, I might only get one chance at making a horror movie. So I'm just going to make all the horror movies I want to make in this first one. <laughs> it's a fair opinion. That is 2000% applicable to Urban Legend. This movie is so clearly somebody who is so fucking excited to be doing a Hollywood film. And it is evident on every level it's so over the top it's so overblown the sets are so elaborate and over there's so much background detail thrown in the camera angles are ridiculous from the beginning like the opening sequence we get not only are there crane shots there's crane shots all over the place but there's crane shots where the camera is moving like the fucking evil dead camera <laughs> and it is technically this was my least favorite of the movies we watched tonight but this was the breeziest watch by far because it was so gleeful in its execution. Yes. And every frame of this movie, you feel like when they called cut, the director just went, fuck yeah. And it's hard. <laughs> you can feel that energy. <laughs> and this movie is trying so hard to be, you know, what it is. And it's funny for what I mentioned that I wish I know what you did last summer played a little looser with its script. You get Urban Legend, it's just, ah, Maybe not that loose. <laughs> Somewhere in between these, the truth lies. I just felt like it was very much the same movie as I Know What You Did Last Summer. It's very similar. At college instead of hometown. I mean, there's definitely similar formulas here. You know, someone is avenging someone else and they've decided to do it in a very elaborate way. So you guys have more experience with slasher films than I do by a country mile. Is the whodunit aspect of them pervasive prior to the 90s yeah because the thing about scream i know what you did last summer urban legend is that you suspect it's somebody you know but you don't know who and they don't really play like in this one they don't really necessarily play fair with the clues because the big reveal doesn't make a lick of sense it makes some sense and i know what you did last summer it's not a character you've met but they imply that all these characters are so I just I don't remember that being such a thing because the main ones I remember as kids were the Freddy ones and you fucking know Freddy did it. Same with Halloween. There's a fair number of them that do something like that. Sleepaway Camp, I think That's the very first fight. Number one with a bullet, Sleepaway Camp. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Which also has the high water mark with endings as far as the killer. Oh movie. my god! <laughs> but Jake, 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 do, do you, have, have you seen Sleepaway Camp? I haven't seen it. I know. Oh, do you know the ending? I know to a degree what the twist is, but I've you never... Do, you are never to look it up. You can only experience it. That's the rule. You can only experience it. You can't ruin it. But anyway, 
Yes, but there's that. I vaguely recall Friday the Thirteenth. Friday the Thirteenth Part One, kind of on who it was. I've never seen the burning, but I would guess it's in there. Pieces of all fucking movies to reference. Pieces. Really, pieces has elements of that. So yeah, it is there in eighty slashers, certainly. Okay, there's that, and there's also the other side of it, which is you know the bad guy, but you have no idea where they're coming from or why they're doing what they're doing. Very much like Nightmare on Elm Street. It's just this random guy who keeps coming in our dreams and attacking us, and only later. Is it fully explained? You know, context, like, yeah. Yeah, the context is what you're searching for in there. That element I, I'm more used to. This one, it just, it surprised me how distinct that was mm-hmm. between these two pictures and, you know, Scream. And this one tries to set up a lot of different people, sort oh, of. yeah. But only <laughs> by pointing out that they're creepy looking for the most part. Basically. So, I don't know. It's an interesting concept. So, Yeah. Urban Legend came out in 1998. It was uh, produced by TriStar, which gave us the Evil Dead reboot, District 9, and Silent Hill. It was also Phoenix Pictures, which were in touch with Shutter Island, Zodiac, and Lake Placid. So good production companies and money. Those were all better movies than this. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Worth noting, too, it was written by Silvio Horta, and it was his first screenplay. And at the time he wrote it, he was working as a perfume spritzer at Nordstrom's, huh. which is why I brought up Sarah Michelle Geller being a perfume spritzer. And I know what you did last summer it was oh, they shared the occupation. And Sylvia Horta would later go on to be the creator of Ugly Betty, which I haven't seen, but heard good things about. And he sadly passed away earlier this year. But yep, his very first produced screenplay. So to start in on the movie itself, again, we get the super eager. I'm making a horror moviness of it. Right up front, because we get a score by Christopher Young (laughs) of Hellraiser, Elm Street 2, Invaders from Mars. He did great scores for Rounders. I really like his score for Jennifer 8. It's a random ass film, but he did a great score for that. But it's Christopher Young. He's a good movie, too. He's done a shitload of horror scores. So we get this really instantly recognizable Christopher Young score. And then we get the font, which is Albertus for the opening credits, which is the John Carpenter font. (laughs) And the director specifically says, yeah, I stole the John Carpenter font. (laughs) This all makes sense. (laughs) So we open on the shot of this SUV that's driving down the road, which is being driven by a character by the name of Michelle Mancini, played by Natasha Gregson Wagner. Who I know from Modern Vampires. That that is a, it's an interesting movie. Yeah, she's driving on a wet road at night and just lightning flashes all over the place. Just these absolute deluge of rain as she's singing to herself. I figured Jake would at least dig the song she's singing. Yeah. Turn around. Bright eyes. I do like that she's singing poorly. And botches a lyric. I love yeah, that. She yeah. botches the lyric. I was like, that's where you need to be. In your car, singing badly to the wrong words. That's life right there. That is a true sequence. I was like, I'm down for this. Yeah, except everybody should know the lyrics to Total Eclipse of the Heart. I agree. I agree. When she got those words wrong, I was like, yeah, I hope she dies. <laughs> but she. Uh, but here's the thing, though. <laughs> she's listening to that song because it's a tape she has, which when she's getting it, she almost hits someone while looking for a tape in the back. Pause. I want to roll this back what I just said, because when I saw it the second time, I highlighted it in bold. She <laughs> almost hit someone while looking for a tape in the back. Note that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, she's low on gas 
And uh, she pulls into the gas station where Brad fucking Dureff, Lon Suter himself, from Child's Play, Dune, and Deadwood, all hell. <laughs> I figured Nick was going to go Chucky or Deadwood, so I was like, I'll go for this fucking two-appearance character from Star Trek Voyager. Nice. <laughs> oh, God. Love the man. I love everything he's in. If I see him in something, I immediately give it two more stars. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, I can't lose. Does that mean you're giving this movie two stars? <laughs> It's a damn crime. He's in it for like the first five minutes and that's it. It's memorable. So she pulls up. He starts feeling the gas. He's kind of looking at her in the car and he gives her this weird look and then convinces her to come into the gas station with him saying somebody's called about the card. This was another thing. Before we get to that, she pulls up to this rusty old gas station with the expectation that it's full service. Yes. This movie's set in New Hampshire. Does New Hampshire have full service gas? Because as far as I know, it's just Oregon and New Jersey. It was over 20 years ago. I couldn't tell you. Uh, No, even back then you had to pump your own shit, man. I don't know. I looked it up and I tried to find it. It wasn't like statewide, but there are in every state there's random full service gas stations. And what I found out while looking for this little factoid, because I went down a stupid road, is that there are sites dedicated to letting people know where they can go get full service gas. (laughs) And... I assume, although the sites I looked at had nothing to this is an accessibility thing, you know, that would be helpful for people to know. But none of the sites I looked at said anything about that. So I can't tell if it's an accessibility thing or just people really fucking love full service gas. I don't know. (laughs) In married with children style where it's a special outing to go get serviced. That might be an old reference for everybody. There's a whole episode (laughs) built around going to the full service gas station. It stuck with me because I always had to pump my own damn gas. Except in Jersey. So he convinces her to get out of the car, but she's smart. She grabs her mace. She goes into the office and he locks her in there. And he's got this terrible stutter. So before he can get out what he wants to say, she maces him, breaks out, gets into her car and takes off as he screams into the night. Someone's in the back seat. <laughs> Which, again, is the same back seat she just dug a tape out of. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> So she's in the car. She's freaked out. You see the killer sit up from the back seat with an axe. She has only gotten out of this car in this entire sequence from the opening credits when he made her get out because he saw someone back there. It's been there the whole time. So <laughs> the killer sits up. She sees him in the or her him or her in the rear view mirror just before the axe comes swinging and takes her head clear off so hard the axe comes out the side window. It was the second car they tried. It wasn't the original car they tried this in. They determined, I think it was a Range Rover originally, and they couldn't swing the axe in it, so they changed up cars. Mm. Smart. It's at this point you really need to admire the thrill-seeking element of the killer in this. (laughs) I was going to say! Because the killer (laughs) swings his axe, beheads the person driving this vehicle who is driving (laughs) at high velocity on wet roads. (laughs) He's like, I'm just going to decapitate him and sit in the back seat and see what happens. (laughs) This is the fun part. And you can't have your seatbelt on. (laughs) No way. No way. But I I think this scene does serve as a purpose to tell you that you really need to check your brain at the door for this film. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because if you can't, this movie's going to hurt you bad. And it did. (laughs) <laughs> I only say that because I wrote down the final sequence and tried to figure out the logic of it, and it made my brain itch. <laughs> so then we cut to Sasha, played by Tara Reed, And her amazing producer. Oh, my God. Who's wearing an open shirt with a pattern that looks like the fucking time tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't know what you guys, but I took issue with this radio station. So they got the producer room, 
where you got the producer back there and he's got his headset and you got all the equipment back there and everything's all decked out. And then you have her in the next room where she's wearing like an earpiece with a mic and that's it. There's nothing in here. Like there's, there's no <laughs> mic stand. There's no shield. There's no, there's nothing. She's basically wearing like a Bluetooth earpiece and that's her radio setup. I'm like, what the fuck is this? I have more equipment in the studio. I'm recording this podcast yes! than they had. in. The- <laughs> Did I take issue with it? No, because the previous scene told me to stop taking issue with things right away. But, you know, she's doing a sex hotline show where they're talking about, you know, blowjobs and semen and safe sex. Under the covers with Sasha. Because college radio stations absolutely allow that sort of thing. Although she was being listened to by Michelle in, in the car before she put the tape in. And like, oh, my God, like her caller called in and was like, so I've been replacing my roommate's birth control with baby aspirin so I can use it. But now she's pregnant and now I have to find a new roommate and I don't want to deal with that. Do you have any advice? And I was like, oh, my God. I had in my notes we were just talking about. I said, you know, on our college TV station, I saw a lot of wacky shit. I saw a lot of naked people show up, people in masks and crazy shit. I never saw anything as awful as I ruined my roommate's life. (laughs) (laughs) So that was impressive. (sighs) But that's really just a quick cut to show you uh, Sasha, because then they cut to Natalie, Brenda, and Parker who are listening to the show. Natalie, played by Alicia Witt. Brenda, by Rebecca Gayhart. Mm -hmm. And uh, Parker, by Michael Rosenbaum, who I will always love for his work in Smallville. Yeah, all my notes refer to him as Lex Luthor. (laughs) (laughs) The man can do no wrong. I love him. (laughs) And his audition for the film was this opening sequence where he's talking about various urban legends, as we'll get into shortly. And his touchstone for his audition was Jimmy Karen from Return of the Living Dead. And they brought the bodies here. (laughs) And the director keyed in on it. He was like, oh, you're doing Jimmy Karen. You got the part. That's awesome. That's amazing. (laughs) Smart. He's a smart guy. So we're introduced to these characters. They're at this coffee shop whose gimmick is apparently oversized, ornate wooden furniture. It's just, again, the amount of detail. To be fair, in the 90s, every coffee shop had oversized, ornate furniture. Yeah, it's just the scale of it. Again, everything in this film is just like, whoa. Well, this is the fancy town of Melbourne, Australia at Pendleton University. So, yeah, Parker's there telling the story about a professor who on campus 25 years ago, who Paul chipes in uh, real quick. Paul, played by Jared Leto, who walks in. Says he's an abnormal psych professor. If you're going to tell it, get it right. And so Parker continues telling about how the teacher flips out, grabbed a hunting knife, and knocked on the door of everyone on the floor of Stanley Hall, and everyone who answered got their throat slit. Took out a whole floor of students before killing himself. And now, the local fraternity throws a party every year to commemorate it. (laughs) The the Omega Sigma Phi Bash. And this is one of those ways you can tell that this is a pre-pervasive internet movie. Because it was entirely reasonable to have stuff like that tossed around. I went to Boston University for a couple of years and there were constant things like Babe Ruth's ghost lived in one dorm and another dorm was mentioned in the REM song, It's the End of the World as You Know It and I Feel Fine, which was a big stretch even at the time because they say foreign towers and the dorm at BU is called Warren Towers and there's no connection between REM and even Boston, never mind Boston University. But still, every year in the student newspaper, there was an article debunking that one because it kept going around and around. It's not entirely disbelievable that disbelievable, unbelievable, whatever. Unbelievable. 
that there would be this legend at this school about, you know, a professor flipping out and killing everybody and that got covered up. The problem is, is in the internet age, that shit doesn't work. You just look it the hell up. <laughs> yeah. And also with the amount of people who have podcasts about true crime and serial killers, there is no serial killer stone unturned that you can't listen to. <laughs> and I say this on a podcast about horror movies, which is not exactly in short supply either. But uh, we're the best, though. So, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, Paul finishes up his story by saying that the dean of the college covered it up so they didn't want to affect attendance numbers. Paul is skeptical, but before he could argue too much, he's called away to the newsroom. He's a journalist for the local school paper. It should be noticed he's drinking a Pepsi in this scene. This yes. is a Pepsi film. Very clearly Whereas I Know What You Did Last Summer is a Coke film. <laughs> yes, we get more Pepsi later in this film. So it's quickly dropped here that Brenda thinks Paul is a babe. This is referenced several times throughout that Brenda has a thing for Paul. And then Natalie and Brenda go to Stanley Hall because Brenda wants to play around with this uh, legend. Natalie is skeptical. She's like, if the story is true, why is the hall still up? She says it's just a legend. At which point they start randomly talking about Bloody Mary and then stand in front of the school and start doing Bloody Mary to the door of the boarded up Stanley <laughs> Hall. This is not how Bloody Mary works. <laughs> this is just wrong. I was curious about that. It was like, was my school doing it wrong? It's a mirror. It's a mirror every time. Anyone who knows Bloody Mary knows this. This was sloppy and stupid. <laughs> this is only the second appearance of a Bloody Mary attempt on the podcast, isn't it? Isn't the only previous one in um, Paranormal Activity? Third one. Yeah, so they do Bloody Mary in front of the school, which is bullshit. And then they hear this moaning and screaming, which is clearly, could not be mistaken, coming from inside the building. But guess what? It was Damon the whole time throwing his voice from right behind you. <laughs> womp womp. Played by Joshua Jackson, who, in his previous career, worked on Dawson's Creek. <laughs> which is another big... Uh, yes, yes, that's coming up. <laughs> which made me laugh when I heard it. Although apparently Jared Leto was basically the big get of this. Again, I was very out of touch with what was hip at this particular point in time. But apparently he was kind of the anchor point. Like, once they got him... It was like, all right, well, we'll, we'll cast you know whoever else we want, but we got Jared Leto, so he was the big get. Yeah, well, he was a big deal from my so-called life, oh, huge. and I think he'd been in some other stuff by that point too. And I think Josh Jackson was—I never saw Dawson's Creek, but I know he wasn't exactly Dawson, so I don't no, think he was. But he was a big deal. Everyone on that show was a big deal. Mm. Yeah. So now we cut to uh, Natalie going home, being spooked by the janitor, played by Julian Richings. Yes. Oh, I love this man. <laughs> He's got one of those faces you just never forget. I love him so much. <laughs> And he's one of the biggest red herrings in the film. He really is. Just who he is, my merit alone should make you wonder, maybe this is the guy. You know? I just like that the red herrings get set up basically in order of creepiness of appearance. You know, not like clever turns of dialogue or this is, nope, this guy played fucking Freddy, so he's one. This guy's <laughs> creepy, so he's another. Yeah, I was very excited to see him as the janitor. And then I was even more excited. Yes. To see who was playing Alicia Witt's roommate, which would be Danielle Harris. Playing Tosh. Scream queen galore. Love Daniel Harris. She's amazing. Yeah, Natalie walks in while she's uh, mid-coitus and has to quickly <laughs> turn the light out and get ready for bed in the dark and put headphones on so she can sleep through the uh, ruckus. Which I tell you, it's not normal roommate behavior, man. You just you you go put take a damn a sock on the door handle, <laughs> you go man. somewhere else. We'll hang out in the lounge for half an hour. You know, I've opened the door to a dark room to hear my roommate scream, no, and then close the door and take off. You know, it's just what you do. 
have a little respect. I mean, I know they hate each other, but geez. So in her defense, Tosh should have put a damn sock or something on the door handle. I'm just saying. Absolutely. You know, and then Tosh, you know, rides the night out to Rob Zombie, which is, you know, aces in my book. <laughs> just listening to uh, Stabbing Westward later. Yes. Save oh, Yourself. Thank God. Oh, so happy One of the best songs that. in this. Oh, it made me so happy when I heard that song. I love Stabbing Westward. There's another Stabbing Westward song across these movies, too. Yep. Yeah, but the next day, they're in class with Robert fucking England teaching the class about urban legends. In this massive lecture hall. <laughs> Huge. Everything in this movie is enormous. <laughs> like, when we get to Robert England's office later in the movie, it's like, I'm pretty sure that's bigger than the dean's office. Jesus. <laughs> See, we got the side secret room. <laughs> it's an Australian's idea of America. Everything is just big. <laughs> and Robert England is teaching his course, and he's bringing up various urban what legends. What course do you suppose this was? It was uh, folklore. It was a folklore? It was American folklore. They say it later. Yeah. The one bit I enjoyed in the sequence was when Robert England first says urban legends. It cuts to Michael Rosenbaum, who smiles and nods like, yeah, that's the movie we're in. <laughs> I know what I signed on for. I like to think that's a fourth wall breaking smile. But that's us. <laughs> yeah, they quickly go over, you know, the one legend about the call that's coming from inside the house mm -hmm. and how the lesson is to mind your children. And Brenda's character is immediately like, no, that really happened in my hometown. He's like, oh, I'm sure it's happened in many hometowns. It's interesting. I basically had this class. I took a folklore class, and one of the things we covered was urban legends. And one of the assignments is we had to write our own urban legend and then send it out into the world as best we could. Fun. Nice. So if you've ever heard an urban legend about a kid who was cleaning a pool and fell in and nobody noticed and covered up the pool for the winter and found him in spring, right here. Nice. <laughs> it's not true. <laughs> I was trying to think of Delaware urban legends while watching this, and the only one I could remember is the Fort Delaware one, mm. where they used to push the cannon up the hill, so you park your car at the bottom of the hill, put it in neutral, and the ghost will push the car up to the top. Ah! I always remember it because I had a high school teacher who always shared it because his dream was to get a field trip there because he wanted to see, he's like, if they want to push a car up, I want to see if they can push a bus. I want to get a bus full of kids there and see if they can push that bitch up the hill. The closest we had where I grew up, we had a specific urban legend, I guess, was just various tales. We had one of the Mooney complexes was up in the woods near us. We used to go throw rocks at it because uh, kids are assholes. But we had all kinds of stories about things that happened to there and, you know, and shooting at people with sand shotguns and stuff like that, which may have been true. Never happened to us. Yeah, it was the closest I could think of when I was thinking about that for this. Well, the next one Robert England brings up is one I had heard of, which is the he calls Rebecca Gayhart's character to the front, gives her a bag of Pop Rocks, which she places in her mouth. And then he holds up very prominently a can of Pepsi yep. and asks her if she'd like something to drink. And she says, no way. I heard if you take Pop Rocks and soda at the same time, you explode. It killed Mikey from the original Life Cereal commercial. <laughs> and to which Robert England already has a slide queued up and says, you mean this, Mikey? And says, nope, actually. And he clicks a slide around and says, you know, he's alive and well and living, I think he says, as an ad executive in New York or something along those lines. Yep. And they mentioned that that actually was a photo of the real Mikey. And I'll just mention it now before we get to the reveal of the killer. I was incredibly upset because I thought they were setting this up for Mikey from the Life commercial to be the killer <laughs> in this movie. Because how amazing. So the killer in this wears a hooded parka you know, with his fur trim on it. And just imagine the killer pulling the hood back. All my life, I was forced to sell life. Now, I'm taking life. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, that would have been much better than the actual reveal. I kind of disagree, but <laughs> just had this image of him stabbing someone and go, see, Mikey likes it. <laughs> It'd have been great. You know, now that I think about it, the actual one of the urban legends that this hinges on about the flashing your lights at people. That was one that went around my hometown as well. Was I remember it? the parents having a PTA meeting about that. Oh, that was news to me. Wow. I, I just remember my mom being a little bit paranoid about that when we were learning to drive it like, and be careful about doing this. Hmm. So this sequence wraps up. Josh Jackson volunteers to take part in the experiment and fakes that he's having this reaction. Uh, and starts to convulse at the front of the school. Michael Rosenbaum is in on it and says he's about to explode. <laughs> Just further establishing that Joshua Jackson's character is a colossal dick. Yep. There's nothing redeeming about him, in all honesty. You think there is in a moment, but... Yeah. And shortly thereafter, they're walking about town. We see their local newspaper that Jared Leto works at, which has their headline of lunatic on campus in enormous print. <laughs> We get our first appearance of one of the highlights of the movie, which would be yes. Loretta Devine as the yeah, Reese, the head of security on campus. She's the best. The only security on campus, apparently. Apparently, yes. I love her so much. Yeah, she's great in this. Yeah, she's collecting the papers for the dean, who is played by John Neville, also known as uh, Baron Munchausen. Yes. I'll always know him as Baron Munchausen. I realize he's like one of the guys behind the conspiracy in X-Files, but no, he is Baron Munchausen. <laughs> yeah he has an enormous filmography but yeah bear munchausen's yes. what i go to instantly <laughs> although i just saw him in an episode of tng funnily enough oh nice so yeah we get them you know this tandem duo of the dean and loretta divine who are working to quash certain things that are going about campus that might allude to things that might scare people off in this case the quote-unquote lunatic on campus at this point natalie simon played by alicia witt she goes back to her room she sees a pill bottle that establishes that her roommate is on lithium. And then she pulls out a yearbook and flips back to a photo. Which is sad. It's just sad. Who brings their high school yearbook to their college dorm? Yeah, even I didn't do that. And I'm sad as shit. <laughs> I didn't do that. No. Yeah, she pulls it out and we see a photo of a cheerleading group. And at the foreground is her and Michelle Mancini, who was the character who's killed in the opening. So establishes that these characters have a connection. But... Also, while she's looking at it, you know, it's this scene of her looking sad at these old photos. And in the soundtrack, there's this echoey, distant noise of like generic cheerleading noises that they just seep in to remind you, hey, cheerleaders, flashback. Wah. It's like, what would they have done if they were in the AV club? Would it have just been the sound of like carts rolling and then dropping equipment? <laughs> <laughs> now, they did have a fun, uh, for me at least, old man moment here. Where like, you know, Natalie wants to use the phone. She picks it up and he goes, you know, that old classic phone modem noise. I was like, oh, shit. And kicks Tosh offline. Yeah. yeah, but she does it. That's the funny thing. She's like, oh, crap. Uh, can I use the phone? And Tosh is like, fine, I'll get offline. Like, no, you're already offline. She just killed that for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm sorry for your day. <laughs> but after this is when she goes out for an excursion with Josh Jackson's character, which has a joke that we referenced briefly. Oh, my God. That went over my head. <laughs> that was my favorite moment in this entire film is when he turns on the car and I don't want to wait is playing. I don't want to wait. For our love to be over. I was like, oh, it's Dawson Creek reference. That's hilarious. <laughs> yes, that one never saw Dawson's Creek. So that went over my head. And another one which went over my head is at the tail end. There is an oblique reference to the character of Brenda Bates, played by Rebecca Gayhart. And a character refers to her as the Noxima girl, which Rebecca yep, Gayhart was. She <laughs> is. That's exactly who she is. So another one just zip right over me. <laughs> yeah, I didn't get that one until I was reading notes about this later. 
But the Dawson's Creek one, despite having not seen it, I knew the song and I knew it was associated with that. I was like, oh, that's funny. But this whole situation has been set up by Damon simply to try and take advantage of her situation. He's trying to like, you know, I've lost someone to, I understand, I lost a girlfriend to some syndrome, which (laughs) it was great because the minute he said that, I could see in her eyes, what the hell is this? She lets him finish his spiel, but we're just shutting him down. He's like, nope. <laughs> and then she actually punches him. Right in the face. Two highlights of this sequence for me. One is, I think Alicia Witt is legitimately terrific in this. I really, really like her. Yes. She does a great job. As the lead, particularly in this scene, too. And then when she punches Joshua Jackson's character, <laughs> the Foley effect is so over the top that for a fraction of a second, it becomes a Cynthia Rothrock movie. We're just like, pow! And it sounds like his entire <laughs> face should have shattered. That's funny. And she says, get me the hell out of here. And he says, well, I got to go take a leak. Just to dial it back. It's interesting because I didn't think she, I, she was fine. But to my mind, she was as bland as saltines with unsalted butter on them. Really? In this. She was... Oh, I liked her. I liked her quite a bit. I just thought she was a big zero. They just didn't give her much to do or anything except look mopey and somewhat disaffected by everything. But she wasn't an interesting character at all to me. How would you feel if she had been singing a Boston song under her breath at one point? Much better. (laughs) (laughs) Duh. I just got finished saying that that... Clearly, I would have liked that more than what I got. I just, I, she just, she just wasn't particularly interesting. I thought I just have to kept reminding myself that she was supposedly the star of the movie, and she, I, I don't know, I never really cared about her that much as much as I did some of the characters around her, including uh, Noxima Girl, whose name I forgot, and Rebecca Gayhart, and They're the same person. Yeah, no, I know. I remembered halfway through saying that 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 was her name. I wanted to give her an identity. First thing they said, like, like Noxima girl, Rebecca Gayhart. Like, wait. <laughs> I just waited for you to start listing other roles she's done. Well, those are her like, two personalities. <laughs> those are the two personalities. She's multiple personality. It's like uh, the, what is it? I Am Eve shows up in this. Or I'm Eve. The famous book about multiple personalities shows mm. up in the movie. So, you know, maybe that's what I'm talking about. Ha, huh? ha, huh? ha. No, I just forgot her name. But you're not. Anyway. <laughs> well, if you're not impressed with the acting in this, you at least have to be impressed with the ingenuity of the killer. Oh, my God. Who, after pouncing on Joshua Jackson, constructs a rather elaborate setup with him. This is one of those scenes that once you know who the killer is, is utterly, completely, and inescapably impossible. It's impossible no matter who it is. Let's think about this for a second. It's like... Not for the Hulk. Out of nowhere, Damon's going to take her to a place of his choosing which happens to be the forest. And this person's like, I got just the urban legend for this one. Let me open up my bag of tricks. I'm ready. Let's do this. Yeah, this only makes sense if he was in on it. Yes, which he clearly wasn't. There's so much wrong with Yeah, you would have to do some hard playing pretend to figure out a way for him to be in on this. It's like the killer needs to have this giant chest to keep with him at all times, like broken up into segments. Each segment labeled with a certain urban legend. Right, no, not this one. No. How the hell is she going to call someone from the car? No. No. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. There's also absolutely no way she would have known where they were going unless she was following him. Oh. All right, look. She. We're going to blow it. Rebecca Gayhart's the killer in this. Oh, my God. Spoilers. So so he's off pissing. He gets noosed, thrown to the ground. He's struggling on the ground with a noose around his neck. Like Eventually, Natalie gets concerned enough. She gets out of the car, sees the killer, gets spooked as shit, gets in the car and tries to turn it on. Now, in the time it takes her 
to not get the car started, this person has hooked up the trailer hitch to a rope, slung the rope over a tree line, gotten Joshua Jackson Damon's character up on top of the car, <laughs> all without being seen at all. Like this is like unbelievably impossible. And so we're choking him out in the process. Oh my god! At which point she eventually gets the car started, takes off, the rope pulls on the trailer hitch. He oh, but goes also up. the killer is on top of the car in this scene. After the car comes to a stop, she jumps on top of the car. Yes. yes. The thing I like about it is she's also wearing the the parka, that, um, which was oh my god, it was written into the film because they were going to film in winter, but it was too much to do fake snow all the time, so they just moved it to summer. But they kept the parka, and again, the damn parka shows up almost as much as the damn slicker did. <laughs> I know what you did last <laughs> summer. It's like what the hell? Why does everybody have the same damn parka? Said, that was a fishing village. This is in the summer. In the there's a person who walks into the fucking pool wearing it. Oh I mean, my god. So yeah, that's infeasible to the point of ridiculousness. She backs up, the body comes crashing down through the windshield, and uh, it's so bad. Oh my god. This movie does not, even more so than I Know What You Did Last Summer, does not stand up to any kind of rewatching deep read scrutiny. Like, you really, really, really have to turn things off to enjoy this. But it's so ridiculous in places where you really, it's like cognitive dissonance to try and enjoy this without thinking about what you're actually watching yep so like natalie then gets away and rushes for help she goes to the camp of security so she runs into reese who's watching foxy brown yeah coffee. <laughs> oh it's coffee. it's coffee i'm sorry but still it's like she knows she's like yeah badass <laughs> <laughs> i really love every part of that i'm just like you get it reese well they get to the scene and all evidence and the body are gone it's just gone no reese says that's impossible which Everything so far has been. It's no more impossible than what already <laughs> happened. Reese says if it's the same person, it would have to have been the gas station attendant who has already been arrested and apprehended. Yeah, poor Brad Dourif gets hung out to dry yeah. and gets framed for murder. Which is funny because he never comes up again. At this point, Natalie is established. She says, you know, someone's taking these urban legends and is making them real. And to that end, goes to the library to get the Encyclopedia of Urban Legends. <laughs> Which, A, exists. B, apparently no one at the college gives a shit about it because for a library book, it is pretty damn pristine. pristine. (laughs) (laughs) And for a college that has a folklore class that has a concentration on urban legends, I call bullshit. (laughs) Meanwhile, Tara Reid is there who apparently has an advanced reader copy of the Kama Sutra with illustrations. Which feeds into a deleted scene where her and Michael Rosenbaum are trying out the various Kama Sutra positions. While his dog looks on. Oh my. We get a brief dialogue exchange with them in the library. Now we cut back to Tosh. This is where we get the goth for goth chat site. Yep. <laughs> where she's starting a conversation with somebody and says, you know, basically, what's your kink? And the person responds, lithium. And she says, ooh, sounds good. Because we said this earlier, <laughs> she has a prescription for that. So she says, come on over. Steps outside of the room. You see that the door is left unlocked. Before she leaves, the last thing she types is, what room are you in? And as she returns to the monitor... In that same text field, the word yours has been typed. Which, if that was done today, I would buy that. (laughs) What's more impressive is, especially given the technology of the time, the killer not only typed in yours, but figured out a way to make it blink. It's not a blinking cursor. The whole thing is blinking. (laughs) That's impressive for fucking rudimentary like AOL IM technology. Which is not mobile technology. 
<laughs> there's there's only two ways this works. Either A, yeah, she got some form of mobile technology into the room and was typing from there, which is ridiculous because she needed a damn modem. <laughs> you know, a dial-up mode. She's like, I'm on the second line. Wait, you don't have a second line. You guys fight over the line. I walk the line in. You know, it's, <laughs> it's – or she was just like, I know somehow magically she's not in the room. So I'll type this now and then run real fast for the room and get inside <laughs> so when she sees it, it will be true then. <laughs> What's interesting about this scene is if you think about it, this is a scene where the technology now makes more sense. Yes. For, like this – aged better yeah, than anything yes. else in the movie because this makes sense now, now but not when then. it didn't then <laughs> it's the reverse cell phone yep and it's also an impressive example of calculated risk because at this point the killer begins to kill tosh in her bed in a room with the lights out with multiple candles around it that are still lit <laughs> <laughs> and so the killer is riding on not only the candles having insufficient illumination to show anything but also is banking on Natalia, the main character, just completely brushing it off as, oh, must be having sex as she comes in. It's like, man, yeah. again, the killer is a real thrill seeker in this. Yeah, so let's just skip ahead to the end of the murder real quick and then roll back. So this is supposed to be mimicking, at least by the end it is, the aren't you glad you didn't turn the lights on urban legend. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that someone comes home in the dark for one reason or another, doesn't turn the light on. And because of that, they miss the killer who's already there. And the killer leaves. They successfully survive, but they're spooked at the message they find the next day. So... <laughs> <laughs> Either her meticulous, I'm going to kill everybody with urban legends to make it fancy and special and try to do what I'm trying to do here... You know, she threw out the fucking window and decided I'm just going to kill your roommate. Oh, look, it's convenient. I can do this now. Or she had to be like, well, if I kill her now at this precise time, there is a decent chance that Natalie will walk in at the right moment <laughs> and catch me <laughs> doing it, but not catch me because I know that there's a good chance that while she's turned the light on before, she's probably still upset and won't do it this time. Just maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Like, you're right. The level of risk involved with this plan is so outstandingly crazy, it makes no sense when you stop to actually look at it. In the moment, it's terrifying. It is a scary scene, but it does not hold up under scrutiny. <laughs> Even killing Tosh doesn't hold up under scrutiny. No! Same with Josh Jackson. And None of the murders in this make any sense at all they don't make sense so a little bit more spoiler obviously natalie is the target here people start dying all around her everyone who dies is connected to her some way but at no point Only tangentially in a couple of situations <laughs> but at no point is it actually like remotely explained at any time why the people around her are targeted before her there's no monologue with like i wanted to take everything you loved and cared first no i'm taking my revenge on you by killing, killing everyone else seen in the hall <laughs> and that's how they don't figure out that it's targeting natalie is because it's not really <laughs> both this movie and i know what you did last summer the main murders that are being built up to are revenge driven and like any good workout, you don't just sit down at a strength training bench and just immediately start bench pressing heavy weights. You stretch, you limber up, you do some quick cardio to get the heart rate up. So that's what this is just warm ups. This is all just loosening the joints, getting the muscles warmed up. These are just prep murders to work your way up to the big one. That's the best I got. <laughs> So, yeah, the killer ends up strangling her, but also ends up cutting her wrist just so it looks like a suicide. 
that while Natalie knows what the hell's going on, you know, everyone else will just blow it off. Because the forensics people in Melbourne, New Hampshire, are terrible at their jobs. Oh, look, here's the cause of death, slit wrists. What, what are your feelings on the finger-shaped bruising around the neck? Oh, uh, yeah, that happens sometimes with slit wrists, I'm sure. It's fine, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so- the dean immediately brushes this off and says, oh, she had a lithium prescription, so fuck it, suicide. Yeah, what about the thing on the wall? Morbid suicide note. I'm like, oh my god. And there's like, oh my, there's some kid. Okay, so you know how people make uncomfortable humor about death with their friends and, you know, in closed rooms? Because, you know, it, it's, things are uncomfortable and you're trying to no, break attention. we never do that. Trying to take attention to humor. Someone flat out says, like, loud enough where everyone can hear it in the hallway. You know, how do you know she's dead? She's always looked that way. I'm just like, Someone just died. Why are you trolling the ambulance text with this humor? I don't understand. I guess Tosh was not well liked, except by other goth guys on the same dark journey. (laughs) So with everyone else disbelieving her, Natalie meets with Paul, the character played by Jared Leto. They meet in his journalism office and he says, all right, well, I'm not sure you know about this he's looking at the photocopy of the tear leading page he's like all right i'm not sure but we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of that crazy murder and then they get a creepy janitor exposition dump with the aforementioned janitor who's they're trying to get some information out of him since he was around when this incident happened 25 years ago to which he will only tell them talk to wexler wexler being the professor played by robert england they Mm -hmm. go to his office during office hours he's not there so they break in jimmy it with a credit card (laughs) like you do (laughs) again Place is massive. And <laughs> they mill about there. They find some potentially incriminating things and axe and other bits and pieces. They find a fur hoodie, just like everyone owns. <laughs> well, see, but this scene got to me a little bit. So they find this secret room and they go and there's a Freddy doll in there. If you, you just blink and you miss it, but it's there. And then there's this scene where she pans and she looks down and she sees this axe. And it's just like this musical cue on the axe. Completely ignores the fucking electric chair. And wig <laughs> sitting right next to the axe. Yep. It's an electric chair with a wig sitting on it and then an axe. And they're like, he's got an axe. And it's just my mind just skipped a beat. Like, what? It's an electric chair. Have you not seen Shocker? I love Shocker. <laughs> but nonetheless, it's like, oh yeah, oh you had an axe, and but no, but the electric chair is there later when they come back with security, and they're like, there's no axe. Like, but this is a fucking electric chair. Why is that not a bigger deal? There's puppets, a wig, and an electric chair. Even if he's not doing these murders, he's definitely doing murders. <laughs> it clearly is it just props from his American folklore. You know, there's that common folklore about the electric chip. I don't know. They got nothing. <laughs> Which is his excuse. So they're quickly apprehended, taken to the dean's office. They tell their dean the suspicions and Anglin's response is just what you mentioned. These are all props from my class. The dean then requests a minute alone with the students and everyone else leaves. And normally in a lot of films, this would be the scene where the dean tries to nice up to the characters a little bit maybe like look i understand you're going through some hard times or whatever no this dean asked for a minute alone so he can just shit on him and say fuck you both neither of you should be here you're a piece of shit journalist i'm getting you fired and you shouldn't have been here in the first place lady because you're on probation so i just wanted to tell you both to eat shit have a nice day 
<laughs> that was funny. I was like, oh, this is going to be the scene where he backpedals a bit. Nope. He doubles down. It's basically a minute of him double middle fingering him like fucking Rawls <laughs> in the wire going, these are for you, McNulty. <laughs> So that cracked me up. And then after this, again, in talking about the execution of this being so enthusiastic, then we get this nonsense sequence, the swimming sequence, where the character in a pool is the Rebecca Gayhart character who's swimming in the pool. And it's all these close-ups done and has these like semi-surreal dissolves done for the first time in the film where it's just doing these fades and these elaborate swimming shots and it's just this nonsense fake out when someone shows up in a parka so natalie can panic and think it's the killer start to smash a window and it turns out oh, it's just another swimmer <laughs> and the filmmakers even comment they're like yeah this scene's kind of horse shit <laughs> but it's very pretty <laughs> it's doofy but again the movie so goes in so many different directions visually it's a lot of fun to watch so at this point we get the confession sequence where natalie is speaking to brenda and confesses that way back when she and michelle were driving and they were reenacting the urban legend of driving with your headlights off waiting for someone coming in the other direction to flash high beams at which point you tail them and rapidly flash your high beams at them. And at this point, we also establish, there's visuals that accompany this. We actually see the flashback and it has like this grain put over the footage and whatnot. So we can actually see what she's recalling. And in the sequence, every time the high beams are flashed, there is a sound effect that sounds like a gunshot where it's just, could you, could you, could you, could you? (laughs) And you would think it's just them being like overwrought because it's reliving this awful memory. But later on, we see it happen in real time and it's the same effects. So in this universe, (laughs) when you turn on your high beams, it's just, (laughs) (laughs) this ties into something we're about to get to in disturbing behavior. When there's a cop who turns on a flashlight, there's a noise every time. It makes more sense in disturbing behavior than it does here. So what's funny is, is that supposedly them tailing him and turning high beams on and off caused him to reach excessive speeds and then run out of control. You know, I've had people drive behind me with their high beams on. You know, it's I don't think it hurts you that much, honestly. No, you just fiddle with your rear view mirror so it's reflecting yeah. back at them. And then you flip in the middle finger and then you like, yeah. Pull off at an exit that's populated if, you, if you're actually worried. And I'll I'll be 100% honest. When somebody flashes me with my high beams, that's them signaling me to drive much slower. <laughs> Whether that's what they mean or not, that's what, that's what happens. <laughs> <laughs> so I can safely say I would not have died in this scene. Might have gotten a fist fight, but I wouldn't have died. Shortly after this, they also unearthed the news article about the original incident years ago. Which, if you pause the screenshot and read the article, I was wondering if it would be nonsense. No, it's a full multi-paragraph article. (laughs) And the amount of detail that's in it, the killer had a hell of a day going on. I guess (laughs) when they go through the multiple steps of what happened that day. Oh, my God. And that's also we get England's photo, which just says, William Wexler, happy to be live. (laughs) (laughs) Guessing he didn't answer his door. He was busy in the back, you know, rubbing one out. And here's the door knocking. (laughs) Fuck off! (laughs) Well, but I mean, this is what drove him to own an electric chair, a wig, an axe, and a copy of I'm Eve, the famous book about, you know, multiple personalities. Because he, like I said, is a killer, if not the killer. (laughs) To be fair, if you'd lived through an urban legend, I would not be surprised if you would become interested in them going forward. (laughs) (laughs) I'm interested in a lot of things, but I don't own an electric chair. 
now we get the parking garage sequence. Oh my god! Where John Neville from earlier, who's playing the dean, approaches this vehicle and is obviously a little antsy. Looks in the back seat, and we get our jump scare where he's you know shocked by someone from behind. Turns out Loretta Divine. They exchange some dialogue. He's vaguely dickish to her. She leaves. She is literally gone ten seconds. Not even. Oh my god! Before he is has his ankle slashed by someone underneath the car and simply begins crawling away. Never calls for help in a parking garage where sound travels to someone who left you 10 seconds ago. <laughs> he just completely silently starts crawling away. To, oh. I'm sorry. Even with the, even the noise made during the scuffle should have been enough to get her attention. What's going on? It's a parking garage. <laughs> well, but it, it makes sense in a little because he is stunned because why would I be killed in this movie? It makes no sense. And Loretta Devine, who walked away, is that can't be him screaming. That makes no sense for this movie. It's not but, even you know. a goddamn urban legend. It's pointless. It serves no point to her goals. It serves no point to the story. It is not an urban legend. It breaks every god. It does nothing. It does set up one of the more amusing anecdotes from the making of. So in the, in the sequence, John Neville's character has his ankle slashed, crawls away. The killer puts the vehicle in neutral. So it rolls forward and knocks him over and impales him on the set of spikes, which are in place to keep a car from driving through the exit gate. Once again, the Prometheus protocol had to be observed. He had to run away from the car directly in the line. It was aiming. Yes. Straightforward. (laughs) And in the making of this, you know, John Neville was up there in years and they mentioned that he was very professional. He's a very sweet man. But the sequence involved an old man having to crawl around a lot and be put in really rough situations. And apparently it stretched on to the point that at one point, John Neville stood up, fixed his tie and said, go fuck yourselves and left the set. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Which multiple people share on the Blu-ray. Everyone's so excited to share the anecdote of John Neville telling everyone to fuck off. (laughs) And apparently by the next day, the crew had shirts made up that said, go fuck yourself. (laughs) (laughs) that's oh that's perfect if nothing else that story is worth this movie (laughs) (laughs) that's the most interesting thing we're going to come out about this movie (laughs) which we now cut to the actual fraternity party that is being held to commemorate the 25 year anniversary of the stanley hall killing where it starts right off with them beer bonging a dog yes <laughs> like this yeah. was confusing too because the members of this fraternity seemed to be Lex Luthor. <laughs> it was basically Period. just him. <laughs> like it comes off as a rich dude party, but they keep calling it a frat party. So it's just you know, Phi Lexa Lou. I mean, it's- <laughs> Phi Lambda Lambda. Yeah, it's him and apparently the creeper dude who creeps on Tara Reed. Oh my god! By commenting, you know, oh that scream, that's an actual cry for help from a girl being murdered. The real villain of this film, yes, was he that was dude. Awful. I will give it this. I, I saw a tweet about this actually today. Today I saw this tweet randomly. I can't remember the Twitter. But it's it's like this is the true villain because this perfectly simulates the feeling of some guy telling you something you don't care about while you're Wait, you know, talking to the side of your face. <laughs> yeah, the actor that cast for it has the perfect look for it. I'll look it up later and we'll give him credit, but it was a great tweet. And it, it's just funny that it came up today. Yeah, I think that tweet was from Jordan Cruciola. Nice. <laughs> so then we get Natalie and Paul, who are just sharing their various fears over what's going on and try to put her at ease. They kiss. This is seen by Brenda, who established early in the film, 
has a crush on Paul, the Jared Leto character. So she gets upset, runs out on the deck. The song that's playing throughout this whole sequence is Zoot Suit Riot by the Cherry Poppin' Daddies. Yep. Which A, is one of the songs from the period I actually recognize, but B, it's also amusing as Rebecca Gayhart is sitting on the deck of this party, crying her eyes out, and the whole time it's, Oh, back about the beer, Zoot It's just this really funny mismatch. Then we cut away to Reese investigating the, uh, the buildings, and the janitor scares her at first, and then she hears glass breaking. She goes into Wexler's room to find it trashed and actually falls in a random puddle of blood. <laughs> That's just there. <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah, it just occurred to me we don't see Wexler die. You never see it. happens off camera. Yeah. Because, again, everyone is a suspect in this movie. So the idea is, oh, look, it is Wexler. He killed someone else in this room. But it's pointless and doesn't actually support anything. You don't connect it to anyone. It's just random. And then, oh, yeah, It's just there, Jesus. yeah. But now we get the death of another character. So we get the death of Michael Rosenbaum's character, who's playing Parker. And his dog. Yes, he receives a phone call. Again, this is another urban legend I was unaware of, but he receives a threatening phone call. And he's saying, oh, is it this urban legend? And the killer says, "Nah, this is the urban legend about the old lady who dries her wet dog in the microwave. And again, it's grody. In terms of the wacky visuals and this movie just going in so many different directions, all of a sudden we're handheld now. For all of this shit with Michael Rosenbaum as he walks around. And then it turns out the killer has put his dog in the microwave, which is revealed by this Peter Jackson, yep. Sam Raimi-esque shot <sighs> that begins in the microwave as he opens the door and then flies out towards him and just crash zooms it's onto him. Disgusting. It's it's gross. We only see it briefly, thankfully. It's enough to make him run and start throwing up. I'm sorry. I've been to a large number of parties in my college days. And there is no way in hell that kitchen was empty. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's just no way that there is completely barren of people. There's at least six or eight people in there drinking as we speak. That's what should have happened. <laughs> Might even be a cat in the fridge. I mean, for Christ's sake, if it was a real like kind of party, you'd have three guys around the microwave just going, go, go, go. <laughs> Michael Rosenbaum runs into the bathroom to throw up into the toilet, but that far into the party, somebody else would be throwing up into the toilet. He'd have to be throwing up into the sink. Been there, done that. <laughs> he would have to jump the line. There would not be an empty room in that house. <laughs> it is not a fraternity party on any level. They, they did a bad job making that a fraternity party. And even so, why kill the dog or Michael Rosenbaum? <laughs> why kill anyone in this? <laughs> it, it's just... And he gets one of the rougher deaths. Yes. So generally speaking, the movie's pretty low on gore overall. Until this. The dog bit we just mentioned and his death. We see like bloody axes, but we don't really see wounds or things that are too graphic. A lot to Even Tara Reed's death, which we're about to come up with, all we see is a red hand. Yeah. There's very, very little. But Michael Rosenbaum's death is fucking rough. Because it reenacts the Pop Rocks urban legend as like a beer bong funnel was forced into his mouth. Pop Rocks are poured in along with Drano, yep. essentially. And it's, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's rough. Blah, 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 blah. It is a rough death. And then we get Tara Reed's death, like we just mentioned. So she's gone to a radio station. We see her producer get killed in the background in this, you know, very stock slasher movie sequence of the lights going out as the killer's in there. This upset me. Because well, it me too. I love that guy. He had the time tunnel shirt. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, it's like, okay, so you've gone through the trouble of taking out the friends around her in urban legend ways just to like, you know, this is your stick. This is what you're going to do. And this is a, I'm going to come in 
kill your producer, her producer, who you're not connected to whatsoever, and then just try to axe murder her normal life. There is nothing urban legend about this scenario whatsoever on any level. Except that she's still on the air. That's not an established urban legend by anyone's standards. It might be. I'd I'd have to review my big book of urban legends, which I've been thinking about taking out ever since we saw this. I just don't know where it is. But again... If anybody has my copy of the big book of urban (laughs) legends, I'd like it back, please. All right. I will accept your argument that this could be a throwback to the guy talking about the quote-unquote urban legend of the person screaming on the recording. Yeah, I I think it's something related to that, I but... But it is loose, not to mention how the hell is she still broadcasting when she's like all over the damn building? I mean... I think because they had mobile technology that we had only waited to see until 2010. (laughs) But also, I I think this one is actually more of an homage to I Know What You Did Last Summer in terms of the big extended chase sequence with the axe and the blonde. That's possible. I'd respect it more if that were true. I don't know for sure, but it's distinctly the longest one of these scenes. Yes. Oh, yeah. In terms of chase scenes and the structure. It's, It's the traditional slasher you know, is she going to get away? Nope. Moment. It has some good bits in it. There's a sequence of them swinging the axe where it legitimately comes close to Tara Reed's eye line. Yeah. It's shown in the outtakes. That was an, she really was that close. Oof. It has the bit with her dangling over on a ledge. She falls and fucks up her legs. So there's bits in it that actually work. Yes. And then there's the actual murder part of it where again, we don't actually see her die. We see the killer swing the axe down Tara Reed is underneath a windowsill, and we're looking at it from the exterior. So all we see is the killer swing down just as Natalie's walking in to try and intervene. Killer does the little wave and then leaves. And then Natalie takes off. It's Loretta Devine's character who comes in later and sees Tara Reed's character, who we assume is dead. Again, all we see is a vaguely red hand. So it could be she's alive. Again, we don't see any wounds. Could be she's just like, oh, I got red all over me or something. And hey, you've got she- red on you. <laughs> At this point, we get an extended chase sequence. Yeah, she catches up with Paul. She catches up with Brenda. I, They're all before all we get to together. that. I do love the little wave that she does because it's just funny and goofy. <laughs> so after we get the little wave, we get this extended chase sequence. Natalie catches up with Paul and Brenda. She gets up with Jared Leto. She's a little suspect of him at first, but you know she ends up going with him anyway. Gets a hold of Brenda. The three of them are running away. They stop at the gas station. He's in there trying to get things sorted out. He's going to call the police. And uh, that's when Brenda goes, do you smell something? And they check the trunk and they find the body of Wexler in the trunk. At which point they're both just like, oh, crap, it's Paul. And they take off running through the woods and get separated. And so now Natalie's by herself and she runs out to the road where she finds the janitor, per chance, is driving there. And she waves him down and gets in the car. And of course, he's all creepy and suspect and has the same damn jacket in the back seat because everyone is a suspect. Because, of course. Of course. This is the coldest summer on record in <laughs> Melbourne, New Hampshire. And at this point, the urban legend that precipitated this whole thing of flashing the high beams is reenacted. This vehicle's coming. Natalie tries to intervene and tell the janitor, don't flash your headlights, but he's too late. He's already flickering it. And again, this whole time, shotgun noises every time there's lights. Plus, Brenda had a car stashed somewhere. They're knocked off the road. The janitor is knocked unconscious. She gets out of the car and runs. And while this is happening, Reese is like prepping for action because she's found the bloody puddle. And so she runs back, gets her gun and looks at the coffee poster for inspiration. Yeah, I'm going to do this. (laughs) Reese is badass. 
That's right. She gets out of the truck, runs back to campus, all the way to the abandoned dorm, to the police yes. box outside of the abandoned well, dorm. To be fair, yeah, she uses the emergency box to call for help, which of course gets no answer because no one's there. When she hears Brenda screaming from Stanley Hall. Right. And she's like, oh, crap, we got separated. And while I got knocked on the road, the killer has grabbed Brenda. I got to get in there and save her. Which, you know, she breaks into Stanley Hall and proceeds to come across everyone's body. <laughs> this is where the movie becomes amazing for me. <laughs> this whole sequence. <laughs> the degree of effort that the killer has put in to <laughs> decorating this murder house, putting all the bodies in place, doing candles, <laughs> you know, the bed, just the whole setup. And then as Natalie is seeing this, she's knocked unconscious by Brenda, Rebecca Gayhart, who reveals herself that she's the killer and announces that she is the killer with a slideshow a that slide she show! <laughs> which is preceded by the line, lucky for you, Miss Thang, I have slides. <laughs> and this is where I think Rebecca Gayhart is legit great in this. Yes. She has she great really eyes shines. For it, and she just ratches it to 11. And it is so much fun to watch as she goes through slide after slide. Oh my God. There was so much about this I loved. Like, for starters, when Natalie goes, uh, you need help. She said, all right, try therapy. It obviously didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> and, and here's the thing i don't get okay so she never does a true monologue like she states i hate you because you are responsible for my boyfriend's death you know the guy they ran off the road right that's as much as you really get for explanation but you know it's like you don't know why she's like no there's michelle who was driving and did this and you were there egging her on but michelle I killed real fast. You had decided to screw with everyone you know. It's like, there's no explanation for that whatsoever. You've got two women who are both equally responsible, and one just gets axed like that. But the other one's like, you know what? No, you, I'm going to fuck with you. And it's like, <laughs> why? <laughs> I mean, it, it. nothing that happens nothing. makes like, Just nothing. think about this sequence for a minute. Just think about it. They're both in the car with Jared Leto, Paul who they're not driving he's driving drives him to a gas station somewhere yes he gets out he's inside talking to them that's when she points out effectively to the body to her friend they see the body go off running into the woods yep okay at this point she then has to come away from her friend go find a car a brand new car drive around randomly until somebody flashes her <laughs> hoping it's that actually the star is in that car that's a good point there's no way she can simultaneously know she got in that car and get a car at the same time it's not possible correct <laughs> but she also has to assume that this person she does not and will not die in this accident that's reenacting the actual accident <laughs> that killed her boyfriend she then watches her get out of the car. She has to drive her car real fast back to the campus, ditch the car somewhere, go into the abandoned dorm, go upstairs, light a whole bunch of candles, probably while screaming randomly because she doesn't she does not have eyes on the stars. So she doesn't know when she's going to get to the precise emergency phone at the time that. The screaming she'll hear. So she has to be screaming the entire time. And only now. And only her. Only yes, now. No one her. else is going to hear this. Which is, <laughs> it's less of a problem because she's killed everybody else you've seen on campus and there's only one security guard. So she's screaming the entire So you picture her lighting these candles, you know, ah, ah. Oh, no, no, no. Not that one. Ah. Come on. Ah. While setting up the fucking slideshow. And then once she somehow sees her friend come into the dorm, 
she has to stop screaming and lie down and pretend to be dead. But before that, she has to slam the door behind her friend, then run her back into the room and pretend to be dead. Yep. Because the door slams behind her and wraps her in the room. Right. And then she has to wait till she turns around before revealing that she's not dead. (laughs) All of this is fine with me. Because (laughs) (laughs) she then, but did she did? She then explains that it's a revenge fantasy because she killed her boyfriend. What does the fucking Dean have to do with any of that? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. You have to make Wexler work. He can work. It's like, oh, I'm going to frame Wexler. But she doesn't actually say that at any point. (laughs) And all of this is fine with me. Because when she forces Natalie to put everything together during the slideshow, and Natalie finally puts two and two together, we get Rebecca Gayhart going, dang, 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 dang. I laugh my fucking ass off at that thing. Again, she's so much fun during this sequence. I will give you that. Rebecca Gayhart was a load of fun to that watch. That was almost my my intro to the episode was just me going, dang, 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 dang. You, you know, I think that might 100% be the reason why I remembered this fondly. Like, watching it now, I'm just like, wow, this is rough. But I remember when I first watched it, I enjoyed it. And I think it was because of bullshit like that. <laughs> just like, yes! <laughs> but even even that, she has... Think about this other bit of it. This girl, the main character, is racked with guilt, having been part of killing this guy, and gone to court, and was convicted of reckless endangerment. The girlfriend, who she never recognizes, never went to court, Probably wasn't in the funeral, never showed up at anything, never talked to, just completely didn't exist in anything. So when she was so racked with guilt, she did nothing about this person's life, friends, family, anything. It's like, he's dead. I feel bad. All right, I'm arrested. Nobody shows up at court. Eh. And it was only like a year and a half ago. They can't be more than sophomores. Yep. That's the other thing. Let's consider that for a moment. You killed my high school boyfriend. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to apply to the same college as you because I want to befriend you for a solid year and a half before I let this happen. (laughs) It's not even on the anniversary of that crime. It's on the anniversary of an entirely different crime that may or may not have happened. They don't know what the beginning of this. And there's still more insanity. Yeah, let's move through the ending real quick because this gets into why the stuff at the beginning didn't bother me that much. So... She's about to enact another urban legend on Natalie, which is the quote-unquote kidney heist, which is harvesting her organs to sell them on the black market. And Jared Leto's character walks in, tries to pretend that he's, you know, down for Brenda's plan. He's like, oh, I like what you've done. And Brenda doesn't fall for it, holds them both at gunpoint. Loretta Devine intervenes and is able to wrangle with Rebecca Gayhart a little bit, but Rebecca Gayhart ends up shooting her. And... We get the bit where she's about to kill Natalie and Jared Leto when Loretta Devine shoots Rebecca Gayhart in the gut and sends her crashing through this window. (sighs) Which we have already established that they are high up. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So she takes a a fall from like a third, four story. From outside, it was third or fourth. Yeah. It's confusing because the light and clearly where the candles are from outside appears to be like the third or fourth story. But when she's like, jostling around trying to find her she's at room 202 which implies she's on the second floor it's like nothing adds up no idea where she's at yeah it's a big ass height natalie is then driving away with jared leto and they have the line which is you know oh this is the part where a twist would happen and oh my god shock of shocks rebecca gayhart is in the back seat once again tries to kill him 
she pops out. She knocks Paul in the head. She then tries to strangle Natalie with the handle of the axe. And before she can properly chop Natalie, like when she gets the axe up, he ends up hitting the side of the bridge and she flies out the windshield into the river. Yeah, she goes crashing through the front windshield into the river. And then we fade up (laughs) on a guy who's telling this story in the same coffee shop that we see earlier in the film. And the dude looks 40. I'm not sure if he's supposed to be a college student or not, but I was like, whoa. And the camera tracks around to show that Brenda is there and says, no, you want to know how it really happened? And that's our ending. So she survives getting shot, falling from this enormous height, and then going off a bridge, which is why none of this, the Herculean acts of strength in the beginning bothered me, is because she's clearly well on her way to Michael Myers' shit. But again, even think about the ending. So she goes out the window, lands. Jared Leto and the star then leave the bleeding cop, who is, they say, is waiting for paramedics. They don't look for a body outside. They just get in a car and start fucking driving somewhere. And the car happens to have the killer hiding it with an axe that she got from somewhere. So she had to have a second axe outside just in case. It's and, you know, and then they try to absolve themselves of everything at the end by saying, oh, it's not a real movie. It's all this guy telling this story. No. Basically, well, no, but that's how they try to excuse themselves. Maybe it's an unreliable narrator. No, I think. But if it is, he's also a terrible narrator. <laughs> and he should fail English. I think the point of that moment is to show that not that it didn't happen so much as it itself has become an urban legend. Like it is. Well, yeah, but also she's got the blue ribbon around her neck, which is the, the woman who has to have the ribbon around to keep her head from falling off. And that was nice. That was good. But no, on the whole, like the way you described her getting hurt and like killed 500 times over Eric is like, she's the Rasputin of horror movies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, she's doing a good job working her way into the Pantheon in terms of the, just the sheer amount of damage she can sustain and keep moving. So, <laughs> Well, not to mention that her entire plan is a is a Rube Goldberg machine of extraordinarily well thought out and just Convenient. precise measurements, <laughs> and you know for all of that to have worked. Yep, slideshow, slideshow, all this horrible shit, and she figures it out with a slideshow. Oh, Jesus, that's urban legend. It's worth it for the Rebecca Gayhart like freakout scene. That that's about it. Some of the Tara Reid stuff's funny. Yeah, it again, I overall, I technically liked this the least of the four movies we're going to discuss tonight. But if you haven't seen this already and you are a horror fanatic and you like slashers, see it because it is so enthusiastic. It's so over the top. That's fair. It is a hoot to watch. And it is ridiculous, but it is ridiculous in a lot of fun ways at times. So I am very glad to have watched it. The amount of enthusiasm that's gone into the making this, it could have been the degree of enthusiasm where it falls completely on its face and you're just like, oh, and embarrassed. And it's not that. It doesn't work. But it's like, oh, man, you clearly had fun watching this and I'm glad you had fun. I feel like Jake's right that this is very much like I know what you did last summer, but it's like two sides of the same coin where while it's kind of the same look and feel, one side is very bland. I know what you did. And then there's this side, which is very vibrant and excitable. And, and that energy really carries through. I didn't like it at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, I understand everything you're saying. I enjoyed, I know what you did last summer a lot more because they at least tried to have some kind of more than this story. That's fair. Whereas this was kind of like, I know what you did last summer, but 
directed by somebody on crystal meth. I think if it had been 20 minutes to a half an hour shorter, I probably would have been much better with it. I mean, it's only like an hour and 40 minutes or something. It's not like a hugely long movie, but it feels over long and bloated for what it actually is. And the kills are kind of interesting at first, but they get less interesting as it goes. And then by the time it's so over the top and so ridiculous at the end that it feels like the entire middle part of the movie was just kind of a waste. Because if you're going to be that wacky and you're going to ramp up, it should be a more of a a better curve other than just kind of being sort of flat and then spiking. But I don't, I don't know. It just, it, it, a lot of it could have worked for me pretty easily and it just didn't. Part of it is the, the main actress I didn't think was interesting at all. Like I never cared about her for even half a second. The most interesting character consistently in this is the security guard. Yes. And that's just because she's fun. It just didn't work for me on almost any level. Of the four movies we're going to talk about, it has the least interesting music other than the Stabbing Westward song. I now know why he hates it. <laughs> I'm a Coke guy, not a Pepsi guy, I guess is what I'm saying. It has the least interesting music in terms of a soundtrack. It has a score by Christopher Young. And not one of his best scores, I don't think. But the, if you are the sort of person who you hear, oh, this movie is a score by Christopher Young, I should check it out, then check it out. If for some reason you haven't seen it, it's just by virtue of that. It's again, it's it's overblown, goofy horror, but I thought it was breezy. So and I'll say this for almost everything we do on this podcast for our listeners, listen to Eric and Nick and not me, (laughs) because one thing we've discovered throughout this is that they are more in tune with what other people will enjoy than I am. And that's not even me trying to be a hipster. I keep trying to figure out what people are going to like and they keep being wrong. So I would listen to them about this movie. Uh, I'll just throw that out there. That's Urban Legend. (laughs) So as you could tell, we went a little longer than usual with this recording. And since the movies we covered fall into two pairs of similar concepts, we're going to try splitting this episode into two parts. Part one ends here with our pair of slashers. So next up is part two with Disturbing Behavior and The Faculty. That episode's also available now, so we hope you enjoy it next.